This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Mary Cooter House. Steeped in history and the home of hospitality in the northeast since 1225, Mary Cooter House is an ideal base for anyone exploring the area, taking part in the Northeast 250, or looking to visit the plentiful distilleries, castles and landmarks of Aberdeen and the Shire, many of which are located a short drive from site. For anyone looking to escape the humdrum of everyday life, Mary Cooter House offers a wide variety of quality, seasonal, local cuisine, an array of Scottish tipples and of course, a warm Aberdonian welcome. All Aberdeen Football Club season ticket holders can benefit from a 10% discount on all overnight stays. Simply use the promo code AFC when making your booking. To find out more or make your booking, please visit marycooterhouse.com. It's Wednesday and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 25 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott. Joining me this week, it's Gavin Baxter. Gav, Happy New Year. How's it going? Happy New Year, everyone. Yes, thank you. Very, very good. Very well here. We're uh, we're a player down once more. Graham's away, still on his winter break, but uh, we've scoured the world. We've got our, ourselves a replacement from across the Atlantic. Absolutely. Making his ABZFP debut appearance this week, all the way from Jacksonville, Florida. It's no blaha, no. A happy new year to you. Welcome to the show. You guys as well. Thanks very much for having me. Honored to be here. Not a problem. How you doing, man? You all right? Doing really well. Yeah, it's been a great festive season over here and uh, really looking forward to 2022. Liking it. This is obviously just an audio podcast, but Noel's rocking a, a classic 89.90 retro shirt for anyone that's interested. Lovely stuff. Noel, before we even get started, there's one question I have to ask you. Because as soon as I saw your surname, I had to ask I know this it's question. coming. Yeah. Is there a distinct relationship to Lubomir? Uh, cousin Lou, uh, we, we don't know. Um, so that was... Uh, as far as I know, no, um, but we'll claim him. Um, you know, we, we got a copy of uh, one, or the t- one or two of the programs uh, that he actually appeared in in his brief stint uh, in, the, in the Northeast. So um, no, no relationship that I can, can say, but uh, it was quite an ironic piece uh, of Aberdeen history when that occurred in our family, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. A man who came, saw, I was going to say conquered, <laughs> but didn't really disappeared without, you know, much way of a second glance, I guess. But hey, it's a busy show this week as we begin with the second instalment of our mid-season review. This week, we're going to take a look across the whole squad and analyse where we think Darren Mowbray and the management team need to be focusing their attention in the January window. And then we'll move on to talk with Noel about his recent pilgrimage back to Aberdeen for the home doubleheader against Livingston and St Mirren. And then in part two of this week's episode, we're delighted to continue our series of exclusive interviews with Don's personalities of past and present as we bring you our in-depth conversation with a man who joined Aberdeen in the summer of 2013, going on to make a total of 104 appearances for the club and who played his part in the Dons ending our long, long wait for silverware. It's the one and only Willow Flood. In last week's episode, we spent some time analysing our summer recruitment as a whole, and this week we're going to take a much wider look at the overall squad Looking back across the season to date and with the aim of looking where we think the management team and the new head of recruitment, Darren Mowbray, needs to be looking 
for the January transfer window, and I guess probably a little bit further beyond that as well, potentially. So without any further ado, let's uh, start at the top end of the park, the attack. Now, a lot of us would probably point a lot of fingers at lack of goals being a real issue for us throughout the campaign to date. But we're going to look at the data because it's all about the data. We're ranked fifth in the league for goals per match. Uh, we average 1.3. Uh, Sevco and Celtic lead the way on that particular metric. We sit tucked in just behind Hearts and Ross County of all teams uh, on, on 1.4. Now, it's fair to say, though, that Hearts and Ross County's numbers are potentially skewed a little bit here by penalty kicks. Hearts have had six this season and Ross County have had four compared to our one. So you know, there's potentially some mitigating circumstances in there. We're ranked third in the league for shots on target per match behind the gruesome twosome. Ranked fourth in the league for big chances created behind Motherwell and third. And with an expected goal of 24.4 at the moment, it sees us ranked in fifth spot just behind Hibs and Hearts and then the usual two up at the top. Christian Ramirez is the second top goal scorer in the league on eight goals, one behind Tony Watt, two of Watt's goals coming from the penalty spot. Ramirez, of course, not on penalty. So, We've even when I talked about the attack, I could see no nod in his head. I could see Gav looking at it. It's an area I think that we've all perceived to be a problem area for us this season. But when you actually look at the statistics, we're not performing necessarily as badly as we would necessarily think. I mean, expected goals 24.4, and we've got 25, so it's pretty much bang as what you'd expect in that in that sense. I'm not gonna pretend that I really know what expected goals means, but it just makes us look like we know what we're talking about. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's, it's a nice it's a nice sounding term. Um, yeah, I'm going to ask, I'm surprised by those statistics. Uh, but yeah, it's perhaps showing that probably what we already know in so many ways that, you know, we we, got, we can score goals, sure, but it's just a case of whether we actually keep out the other end of the pitch is the, is the issue, really. Well, we'll come on to the defence soon enough. But no, your thoughts on, on the attack? I, I mean, it just, it feels like that final third, they're just kind of missing that umph. I mean, last year it felt like Hedges stepped up and, and really was the ignition to finishing in the second half of, of last year. Um, you know, Watkins has come on as of strong lately to help them up there. You know, Ramirez, anything within that eight yards, uh, you know, circumference around the goal, he's going to finish. He's going to put it away. But uh, you just wonder, like, getting getting to that final third and that creativity from from free play uh, has really been a struggle it feels like so yeah you look at the statistics and, and on paper you know that looks great but you know uh it, the the eyeball test as we call it over here in the states sometimes it just doesn't pass and, and, and even you know in those matches where they're putting goals away it still feels like they're just you know coming off of set plays and which which is great you, you want to score whenever you can but the, the free play it's just it's kind of confusing and it strikes me as weird because at the start of the season that europa league play i thought we were going to be set because I thought Jet and Ramirez really made up a really great duo. You know, Jet is this controlling guy. He's going to control it and he's going to shield the, the defender off and he's going to distribute Ramirez and find Ramirez. And you know, it seemed to work in those Europa League matches. And then it kind of went away and, you know, Jet has played better as of late, but uh, it just, yeah, it's, it's just tough. They should be doing, it feels like they should be doing much better. Um, you know, but those numbers are pretty solid. I guess what you'd maybe say is it, and yeah, Gary, you're right. I mean, you look at Hearts, Hearts are the third highest, that's 29 goals in 20 games. So all in all, it seems like it's a pretty tight, competitive, you know, goals are not flowing kind of league, I guess. So I guess maybe it reflects that. I think you'd say again, 25 goals for Aberdeen in 20 matches is pretty, I was going to say below par, but that's not the correct term. It's above par. It's, yeah, it's reflecting, yeah, there's been, as Noel said, maybe it's just not the quite 
the spark in the front in the front end, or maybe just not quite that finishing touch where we wanted it to be. But maybe the panic size shouldn't be there in the way that we probably expected them to be there as little as maybe a month ago. Yeah, the, the stats are really weird as well as far as this goes because no, you just talked about like set pieces, for example, and I think that we would probably all sit and go set pieces we've kind of done all right this season. Um, they've kind of tailed off a little bit in recent weeks, but we went through that little run, especially the the Hibs Heart Rangers match, St. Benin before that in particular where we were scoring these goals from set pieces. But I'm going to throw another statistic out here. Of the 25 goals we've scored in the league this season, 16 of them, so two-thirds basically, have come from open play. It's only a third of our goals have come from set pieces, which again, I find it doesn't marry up necessarily with what I think I've seen, but 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 the statistics are there. I guess we're going to go into the old Ebby Scovedal quote here, and we'll try and get it right. That was again, that statistics like miniskirts, they, was it again? They tell you a lot, but they hide the most important things. Or That's the one, not the one that the boy from Don Sports trusted, which was they go up and down, I think was how he <laughs> mangled that particular quote. Um, it's a really weird one. I mean, Nola, I kind of want to talk to you really quickly about Christian Ramirez because yeah, um, you'd, you'd mentioned to me before that obviously you saw Ramirez um, obviously playing MLS football before he came to Aberdeen, but even before that, when he was playing, was it USL Pro? Yeah, he was playing in the USL, you know, which is a minor league system. And if you look at Ramirez's pedigree, he played Division One college soccer for a year and then transferred transferred down to a lower level. Um, and you know, he's a, he's a really good success story when you look at it. You know, working his way up again, you know, from the lower level of the college ranks to going to the USL route to getting noticed by the NASL uh, Minnesota United, and then when they went over to MLS, he, he stuck with them and, and even got capped for the national team. Um, so hard work pays off. You know, that's the, that's the American adage on, on stuff, and he's really stuck to it. Um, he's been a surprise, though. I, I did not like the signing. Um, yeah. And I, I personally do not like MLS. I, I don't like the, the style of play. I think um, I, I didn't think that that was a good signing. And he, he shut me up very quickly. Um, and, and he's earned my respect. And, and, you know, just seeing him a little bit on social media, I think he, him and his family have really embraced Aberdeen. So much respect for that. But his, his play, I mean, he's there, he's pressing, he's hustling. I think he is uh, you know, I think he's been a really good addition to the club. But like you said, when I saw him, you know, previously, when I've seen some of these guys on the U.S. national team, I, I just, you know, he's older, 30. I, I just I, I didn't know that he was going to be, you know, that great. And when we see it go the other way, watching a guy like GMS play, uh, try and play in the MLS, it was, you know, it's just just kind of strange. I, I don't know. It, it didn't sit well with me, but it, it's paid off. So, you know, what do I know? I think that's uh, uncertainty or maybe a dubiousness of Ramirez that we all shared in many ways, principally because of his age and the level he'd played. I mean, he'd, as he played with Minnesota, which I think is the division below the MLS, I think, and then, you know, had pretty unsuccessful uh, times with both Houston and LA, wasn't it? So to come in at 30 years old, um, obviously a big kind of deal. Yeah. Obviously, a name we'd heard about a lot, pretty much ever since Glass walked into Ramirez was a name we'd heard limitations definitely there's you know he's he's got weaknesses but um, on the whole i think he's given us that instinctive focal point in the attack that um you're always going to benefit from in football yeah i think so i definitely i think the, the big issue we spoke about ramirez a lot in last week's episode so i don't kind of want to go too much detail on, on christian ramirez this week but i think we would all probably agree that he's a guy that i think needs a level of support up there with him i don't think he can really play as a, a one up top by himself it's not his game i feel that as no you said if you give him the ball in the kind of width of the goal frame within the kind of penalty box, penalty spot kind of area, I feel confident that he's probably going to 
certainly work the goalkeeper more than likely not you know finish it off I think he's been really good as far as that goes this season I think there's still a level of concern for me around the ability to you know knock the ball through to him for run for him to run on to a, a through ball and, and, yeah. and finish us finish off you know one-on-one or something like that we've, we've barely seen even a an opportunity like that from for, to even judge whether that's a, a part of his game he can he can do let's move on to the rest of the guys who are in the attack and again we kind of did cover a lot of these guys last week because it's effectively a brand new strike force this season that's what Stephen Glass had to try and do let's look at um Marley Watkins Marley Watkins came in towards the back end of the of the summer transfer window I think most Aberdeen fans were, were pleased to see him come back in again and sign on a permanent deal he impressed in his loan spell before he got injured last season um your thoughts on Marley Watkins guys I think he's come on as of late. Um, you know, I think he, he almost is playing the role that Hedges was last year is that spark. Um, you know, he's, he's got the pace, you know, he, he's comfortable with, with pulling the trigger. Uh, it just, just seems like he's just slightly off with it, you know, a little bit, you'd like to see that success rate be a little bit, you know, more than what it has been so far, uh, you know, on the campaign. Um, but I, I think he is going to, I think he's going to be critical to this, the club's success in the second half of this season. I think, I think as Marley Watkin goes, I think the club goes for the second half of the season. Yeah, tend to agree. Um, not going to be twenty goals by any stretch of the imagination, but if he brings what he brings to the team and gets ten goals on top of that, then I think that's a successful season for Marley. Good player, very important for just bringing us, bringing the attack of the game, getting us up the pitch, stretching the opposition. Yeah, uh, been very happy with him. I think he's been a little bit off the boil lately, which is surprising. Um, I think he was great against St. Minimum when he scored the double, and that's not quite happened ever since. But I still think he's a very big player. And I'm glad to hear that by all accounts, it sounds like the injury isn't too bad and he should be back available for Rangers. That's good, because I think there were some images of him on crutches. Yeah, I see, I'd seen him in like a protective boot. Yeah, but it sounds like that's all kind of precaution rather than reaction. So good. I think Glass was saying he should be in contention for Rangers. Uh, let's talk about, again, really quickly, J. Manuel Thomas, a, a guy who divides opinion um, divides opinion on this very podcast. No, your thoughts on the big man. What an enigma, right? And I, you guys have, have hit on it throughout the, 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 the podcast, you know, this season. Just, you know, on one minute, he's doing an incredible back heel or a step over. Or he's, he's breaking ankles of, of the defender. And then, <laughs> then for the next 15 minutes, you wonder if he's out there at all. Um, but again, I just, I keep going back to those early Europa league matches where he was, he was, I don't know if they've changed how, how they want him to play or where he is in in the middle of the the park or getting him out a little bit wider sometimes, but when he was in the center and in the middle, holding it, holding up the play and then distributing, I I really, again, what do I know? I I have no coaching licenses or anything like that, but geez, he can hold that ball up and, and distribute it to one of the to Watkins or to Ramirez or whoever it might be to hedges. And I, I think there's a lot to, to be said there. So I don't know if it's, it's a matter of he hasn't found what glass wants him to do or glass doesn't know what he wants him to do. It's just, yeah, what an enigma, but I, you know, I, I think he's got the skill and the talent to be a, an integral part of the attack. Uh, if he sets his mind to it and, and goes out and does it. Key thing there is playing two parts. You know, I think you're right. Does he know what glass wants from him? Does glass know what he wants from jet and, Ultimately, it's can he put his mind to it? But I'll stand by what I said again last week. He is a match winner, and that's very rare to find in football at our level. So, and I think we found it through Twitter from the kind of reaction, feedback of last week's episode that people on the whole, they're still unsure, but they want to see more. And that's uh, so, yeah, it just backs up. He is the, he is the enigma. Yeah, absolutely. I think, no, you touched on it as well. The system, 
I can see why. I I, can, I understand why we're trying to play him on the on the wide right now of the three that sits behind. I understand yeah. why we're trying to do it. I get it because you're trying to isolate the fullback and try to try to pull a number of players into that area of the park away from the centre of the pitch to create space in there. But the problem for me is that with Jet, a lot of the time the, the game seems to slow down when it gets to him. Yeah. And therefore people kind of double back in and they fill those spaces again. It would work perfectly if he got the ball and moved it quickly. But too often that doesn't happen. Um, but you're right, Gav, he's, he's a match winner potentially. I think he's definitely, we've spoken about before in the show, he's a horses for courses kind of player. He's not going to play every game of football this season. There are certain games that it's just not suitable to even think about playing him, particularly when you play against the bigger teams, the better teams in the league, because this is not a guy that's going to be running around pressing a defence when they're in possession. But against the so-called lesser teams, in the league, I think there's a lot to be said for the for guys like Jet, who can. We saw it in the Livingston game. We saw it in the St. Mirren game in the first half. It kind of dropped off second half. But you could see that he could come in and influence and occupy a number of players on the opposition team, which allows us in games like that, where teams are going to come to Tawdry especially, they're going to try and sit in. They're going to try and make it difficult. If he can occupy a number of players who are just trying to get the ball off him, and if he can find those little passes it does create so much space for us. And, and and it's those games that we really, really need him to step up. But again, we've spoken about Jet ad nauseum on this show to date, so we, we can move on from, from him. Austin Samuels is probably the only other recognised attacker we have on the books at the moment, I would suggest. Is he still here? He's still here, as far as I'm aware. At the time of recording, Austin Samuels is still here. He tweeted, or he, he put on Instagram today, something along the lines of, Still fighting for, not still fighting for this trophy, that's Kevin Keegan. <laughs> still fighting for, like, this ambition or something like that. And it was a picture of him in his, his Aberdeen shirt. So, again, it's a bit of an odd one. He seems to have just been almost kind of forgotten about after a, a bright-ish start to his Aberdeen career. But I can't decide if it was bright-ish because just basically he had a bit of pace and it was something we were really lacking at the time. I don't get it. I, I just don't know if he's just not fancied by the manager or by the by the coaching staff. There's been a number of games this season where I felt in the later stages of games, a guy with pace to burn, throw him on, play him up alongside Ramirez, don't put him out in the wing, try and get balls either over the top or around the side of the centre half and let the guy run on to it and see what he can do because we've not really seen enough to really judge just kind of where I am with it. But yeah, up to up, over to you guys on this one. I think um, we still lack pace. I think we could really benefit from in the team, but um, there's clearly something, whether it's within his, why he's delivered, what's going on behind the scenes, I don't know, but we just, something's not right. And it just goes back again that if what if pace is what we want, then I'm sure there are options out there. And if oftentimes they're just going to be here and just sit on the bench with no real consideration being given to him actually playing, then there's no point in him being here. So when the Dundee game finished, my instinct was that he would be one along with Longstaff who would leave. And I still think that'll be the case. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Longstaff. It almost feels it almost feels like Glass had an idea of, of uh, a speedy attacking forward and he was just given Samuels and said, Here, here he is. Like plug him in. Is he gonna work? And, but we really haven't seen enough of him to, to figure out if he if he will or, or could. Uh, so it's almost a disservice to him to, to have him just stay on the bench. So, yeah, I, I'd like to see more of him. But if he doesn't fit in with with what, you know, the, the club is looking to do out there, I, then, you know, I think we, you know, wish him the best and, and see what he can do elsewhere. And that kind of basically wraps up the attack. I'm going to class Ryan Hedges as a midfielder for the purposes of this particular segment, um, just because I get to decide. Um, 
looking at what we have, effectively you're talking about four attackers we really have in the squad at, at this moment in time. For me, this still feels like, no matter what the data says, it still feels to me like this is an area of the pitch that we really need to address in January. Um, Ramirez, I don't think, can keep being asked to be the sole striker at the top end of the park for the remainder of the season. It's a big ask for a guy, especially in his first season in, in Scottish football, at the age of 30, yada, yada. You know, it feels to me that we need somebody else that we can bring in who's an option to score his goals because Jet, Watkins, even if you include Hedges in this group here, and who knows if Hedges is even here past the January window, they're not guys who are going to score you 20 goals a season, no matter what Jet promised at the start of the campaign. 20 plus. 20 plus, sorry, he said, yes. He's got 20 still to go, the big man. For me, it still feels like an area we need to address. I agree. Is it an area I would immediately prioritize? I'm not quite sure. Not quite sure where I would sit in my kind of pecking order of what I would be uh, looking to do in terms of January. Uh, but yeah, if, if we could find... This, again, is the issue with the January transfer market and where we are. If we want to find a goal scorer, well, we kind of need to unearth a bit of a gem or we need to find an Adam Rooney type because if you're a goal scorer, chances are you're going to be playing playing in your team. So it's a gamble, isn't it? That's what, what we're probably going to have to take or, you know, Glass can maybe use his contacts. Maybe Darren Mowbray can use his contacts. Someone who's out of favour but we know can do a job. Um, yeah, like I say, January, it's a very tricky market to work in, especially for someone like a goal scorer. No, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, th- it's going to be a challenge. You know, absolutely right. You know, whether it's reshuffling those those four guys, but, you know, I, I think the bottom line, Gary, you hit it. I think something needs to be added or, or adjusted with with that attack to to get the results that we're looking for. Do you think it's probably time that Austin Samuels is handed back to Wolves and we consider that experiment's not worked and therefore we use whatever we're paying towards his wages goes towards somebody, something else? Well, let's be honest, he's not been used as an attacker anyway. No, he's not. So he's been used as a winger. So he yeah. doesn't even really, in our sense, belong in this conversation. Um, if he's not going to play, no point in being here. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that for you know for our sake and for his. I, I mean, certainly we don't want to be seen to be or try to pretend we're in the know. We've had some interesting names come past our our Twitter feed and our, our private messages, shall we say, um, about players who, who apparently we're looking at. And all I'll say is if some of those names are real and realistic then it would say to me that we are casting our net further than we have been in recent seasons i.e it's not the english league one or league two um and one or two of those names do look potentially interesting i think so it'll be interesting to see what happens in january i feel that this is almost the first test of the of the new regime shall we say and in terms of there's been a lot of talk from dave cormack and from stephen gunn about looking at different markets and looking to exploit different markets there's been a lot of stuff in the press just in the last couple of days here in aberdeen about looking at the uh, michelin model uh, from denmark and looking at link-ups with uh, i think michelin have got a link up with a side in ghana and they take some top african talent through the danish system and look to try and sell it on i noticed very interestingly that an ex aberdeen fc community trust coach or a coach from our youth setup has moved to a side in, it was either Ghana or Nigeria. I can't remember which one it was, but it's to an African country of some sort. The cynic in me would suggest that doesn't happen for, you know, at random. That that seems like a, a move that has to have some sense of logic somewhere in there. Um, I wonder if that is something we are we are considering. Um, uh, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a big window for Darren Mowbray and Co here. Um, 
to try and demonstrate we're doing different things with our recruitment. It could, yeah, it could be a gamble, it could be a risk, but if you don't take those gambles, don't take those risks. You just, you know, continue on. I, I think something has to be done. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be very interesting in the coming weeks to see what happens uh, specifically up top. And yeah, it'll be a big one just for the entire club, the entire recruitment structure as a whole, because I think we'd probably agree. Seems that the, on the whole, people agree with our sort of assessment of the Jan, of the summer transfer window and that it's probably more misses than hits. And yeah, that's, um, Something that can get the sports back up quite quickly. I think when Derek McInnes started going down that trend of probably bringing in more duds than successes, that's when people started going back and thinking, well, is this the guy to take us forward? Likewise, if people, if we bring in another Matty Longstaff or another Austin Samuels in January, it's just here occupying space doing nothing, then very quickly people are going to start thinking about, well, are these people the ones to take us forward? Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on to the midfield area because this is, again, interesting. I love the data for this stuff because... I think most people would probably look at our midfield and go, doesn't feel to me like it's a big issue. It probably doesn't seem like it's the area of the park that needs the most attention. But only one player of ours features in the top 12 for successful dribbles per match. And it's not who you think it is. It's Marley Watkins. And he's placed fifth in the league on this metric. Now, interestingly, Jamie McGrath of St Mirren is placed fourth on this particular metric. Ryan Hedges is 13th in the league. Key passes per match. Our highest position player in the league on this is Calvin Ramsey. He's in fourth spot. Lewis Ferguson is our top place traditional midfielder. And he's in 70th place in the league on this metric. Teddy Jenks is our highest placed big chance creator in joint 19th spot. And that's with three across the season. Dylan McGeek is the next best traditional midfield in our squad. He's in joint 31st spot with two. Now, what you might expect is that there's lots of success in the successful passes metric. Ferguson, Brown, and King Ojo are all in the top 30. Ferguson's in 16th spot. And Aberdeen sit easily in third place in the accurate passes per match ratings. We average 366 accurate passes per game. And we're comfortably third in the average possession stats, which is 58% is our average for the season, which for an Aberdeen side is, is, is very, very high. Now, this for me is interesting because it actually shows to me the data is playing out potentially where the biggest issue for us this season actually really lies, and that's in creativity from the midfield. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a lot to unpack. I'm digesting all of that information right now. <laughs> Surprises. I mean, I mean, when you look at Ferguson, surely a top talent, you know, and, and wherever he ends up, he's going to end up, and he's done great things for Aberdeen, but... Dare I say, I, I expect more from him. Uh, you know, I don't know if he, he's uh, got his eyes, you know, his sights set somewhere else this season, but I, I do feel a little bit that, that I would expect more from him, um, both tangibly uh, in the metrics that you've shared, but also just in seeing him out there. So I, I haven't felt that we've gotten the best of him, you know, that we have in, in, in previous seasons, but I, I, and I was giving, I was chalking that up to the, the system a little bit. So, um, so I don't know. I mean, that, that's the one thing that stands out to me is I, I would expect some more from Ferguson. I think the thing for me with Ferguson this year is that I think in flashes, we've seen what he's, what he, what he's all about. For me, I would like to see Lewis Ferguson start to grab games by the scruff of the neck. A little bit more now. I think we see it from time to time. I would love to see Ferguson be more of a box-to-box midfielder more frequently. I mean, obviously he scored the winning goal against Dundee uh, last time out. It got on the end of the, the the nudge back from Ramirez. Finished it very, very well. But for a guy who strikes the ball as well as Ferguson does, 
for a guy who's got the running and the fitness that Ferguson does, I'm not entirely sure that he scores enough goals. If you take his yeah. penalties out of out of the equation, um, does he dictate games enough for me? I'm not sure. I still think he's a really, really good player. I think we've done well out of Lewis Ferguson. But at the same time, Lewis Ferguson has done very, very well out of Aberdeen Football Club. And I think that that shouldn't be forgotten either because he was a guy who'd been released out of the Rangers youth setup, had gone to Hamilton Ackes, had, had made the breakthrough into the Hamilton side, fair enough. But Aberdeen kind of took a bit of a punt on him at the time. And it's turned out to be a a punt that was well worth taking came in relatively cheap. You know, we should sell him for a decent transfer fee, but let's not forget, like I say, Aberdeen's, you know, Lewis Ferguson's done all right out of Aberdeen football club as well. And it does grind my gears somewhat when I hear his dad complain about certain things. Cause it's like, well, you know, your son's done okay out of us at the same time, mate. Right. And I kind of wonder if, if Scott Brown hadn't been playing alongside him a lot this season, would we be complaining a little bit more about Ferguson not taking games with the scruff of net because Brown's been doing that potentially more consistently? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I feel, you know, Jet gets the knock because you'll, you'll make a great play and he disappears. Uh, Ferguson has tended to disappear a little bit this season as well. Um, you know, and, and again, just expecting more from him, you know, more of that, you know, Graham Shinney, he, he's in control, you know, he, because he plays like that. He's got that mentality. He, he's going in hard on tackles. You know, you don't want to mess with him, but, but he does, he kind of just disappears for a little bit, both uh, from, from his play as well as just, you know, kind of taking over, you know, for the team. And, and, you know, as we get back, uh, you know, as we go through the, the squad here and get to the defenders, you know, uh, uh, McCrory's almost stepped up and taken, taken that role. And I would have expected Ferguson to do that before anyone else uh, that's been on this uh, squad for the past few years. So, so yeah, it's, it's, he's, he'll, he'll be an interesting one to watch as well. And, um, you know, like you say, we're, we'll, we'll make some good money off of him when, when he departs and, and he's put in some good service to the club, but, you know, again, we gave him that opportunity and, and he's fit in very well here as well. Because the thing for me is I would expect when you when you play with a two in the midfield, as we tend to do, and, and for the majority of the season, it's been Brown and Ferguson, I would expect one of them to be playing those key passes, to be trying to move the ball forward between the lines quickly. And Scott Brown's probably not the one you would look to for it. It's not his traditional game. So you are looking towards Ferguson to do that. And for me, I was very surprised to see him sitting in 70th spot in the league on that list. Um like I say, Calvin Ramsey's our top performer. He's fourth in the league on this, which is crazy. I don't know if that does talk about system, setup, style of play, that the centre midfield guys are being asked to keep the ball a lot and recycle possession rather than look for those balls that are breaking lines. Is he a victim of the way that we're, we're set up? It could be. Yeah, it could be as well, for sure. I'm sure that there are people listening to this currently just shouting at their phones, tablets, computers, wherever, <laughs> just saying, well, the reason for all of this is the system. And the way that midfielders are expected just to play safe side to side passes. Whereas, and then for like what did feel like a bulk of the season, our wing backs were our attacking options. And hence why, you know, Calvin Ramsey and Jack McKenzie were both, you know, knackered within 18 minutes of the game and we got caught down both yeah. flanks on, you know, time and time again. Interesting, interesting stuff. What does, what defines a key pass? Uh, you'll have to go and ask Opta, I think. Um, I'll, I'll have a look while you're chatting. Right, okay. So, because it seems surprising that Teddy Jenks is our third highest, is what our highest placed big chance creator. Yeah, yeah. That does seem difficult to believe, but who am I to question the uh, the researching 
abilities of the people that, well, deal with this kind of nonsense. Um, <laughs> not surprised Marley Watkins is our best dribbler. And we talked about this last week. Um, he's got. You're this... not surprised. Would you not have put Hedges in that? No. I think the amount of times Hedges tries, he's probably going to get dispossessed probably about half the time. So I think I think things like stats like that always come down to me. Like, well, how often does he, you know, go on runs? And, you know, success rate, you know, might be half, but it's maybe probably more effective than um, someone who does it maybe once or twice a game. Um, but yeah, Watkins has got this incredible ability without without really anything in the way of pace or, you know, outright trickery. He's just got this ability to take the ball, use his frame, use his strength and get away from defenders. And that's why I think even when he's not maybe playing as well as you'd like, maybe he's not proving the threat you want him to be. He's just got this ability to carry the ball and get us out of, you know, either defensive situations or bring us up the pitch. And that's why I think he's such an important player. As for the rest of it, you know, when it comes to Ferguson, I think, listen, it's January. What day is it? It's January 2nd. Second. Today, it already feels like it's been a month. So obviously the transfer rumors will be beginning again i think there's a lot of people that are still peeved with lewis ferguson for his perceived attitude or maybe taking his eye off the ball whatever you want to call it i think a lot of that he's a victim of his father and a certain podcast that we will not mention again i think we've done well as lewis ferguson i think he's come onto a game in the last month or so maybe the last two months you think he's really been a driving force in the games we've won in the last in the last five so big player like everyone, underachieved this season, but that's, you know, he's not the only one. Um, so I would, think, I would say, I think I would simply just say there that we've done well at Lewis Ferguson as of late again. But would you not agree as well, Lewis Ferguson's done pretty well at Aberdeen Football Club as well? He has, yeah. So, yeah, I just want to kind of throw that one out there. No one and I were talking about it. Oh, no, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. He absolutely has. We've given him a platform to go on and yeah, potentially make a career in England. But, you know, it's give or take, he's taken the opportunity, which is more absolutely. than... Oh, it can be said for a lot of people in his position. Absolutely. A, a big chance, by the way, is defined as being a situation where a player should reasonably be expected to score. So there you go. Interesting. Well, that's there's nothing vague about that at all. No, not at all. Um, Scott Brown, we talked ad nauseum about last week, and we spoke about Scott Brown a lot. Um, I think it's fair to say we're all big fans of, of Scott Brown on this podcast. It's nice to have somebody on your team doing the shithousey things that Scott Brown does. And it not happening to you, so that's good. Let's let's look at some of the other midfielders, though. I mean, we've talked about Lewis Ferguson. I'm fully expecting that Ferguson departs in the January window. I bet he'll stay. You think he'll stay? Yep. I think we'll move one player on, but even though we won't really lose him as such. Okay. No, what are you thinking? Are you thinking? I, well, I mean, I think he could be. You know, every, all the attention's focused on Ramsey right now, but I, I think uh, you know, I, I think he could could go, but I, I think he stays. Connor Barron returned from Kelty Hearts uh, this week on loan, and all the indications from the club appear to be that he'll be back in the first-team squad after the winter break. So I'm kind of intrigued to know what this is going to mean for the likes of Teddy Jenks, potentially. That's the one I've got my eye on. What are your thoughts on Jenks so far? We spoke about it a little bit last week on, on the show as well. And, and do we think that Connor Barron maybe is coming back to nudge Jenks out of the picture? My impression, well, with Jenks, Again, what I said last week, he has been very good as of late, stepped up. I think there's a lot to be had from Teddy Jenks being happening for another six months. So I hope and I look forward to him being a part of the team uh, till the end of the season. With Connor Barron, I suspect that's a much more of a case of coming back and basically doing providing the competition that Longstaff failed to bring. 
I don't think it's really got anything to do with Teddy Jenks. No. I think it's much more if he's been a real success down at Kelty. Uh, the clubs clearly see something in him. Maybe looking even more long-term, as we're going to mention in a second, you know, bar, if we think about Ferguson perhaps leaving, bar Scott Brown, everyone else could potentially be away in the summer. And we've got to look long-term. And that was kind of the part of the remit Stephen Glass was brought in to fulfill. Young, exciting players from the academy coming into the team. Connor Barron's done great. Uh, League two, it's a big step up without even without a shadow of a doubt, but it appears they see something in him that says that he can actually make that step and, yeah, make his way into the team. But, yeah, I think he's much more here to do what Longstaff's doing rather than anything to do with Teddy Jenks. Okay. Um, Matty Longstaff is obviously gone. Um, gone, but not forgotten. Ryan Hedges is the guy that everyone else is talking about in this, in this January window. Uh, again, I fully expect that Ryan Hedges will be gone in this window, I don't suspect he'll he'll still be here come the end of it. I think he may sign a pre-contract with Blackburn Rovers, I think, are the ones that are heavily linked with him at the moment. I would be surprised if he does sign that pre-contract that we don't try and do a deal with Blackburn to let him go now, if I'm honest. Uh, your thoughts on Ryan Hedges and, and whether, if an offer comes in from Blackburn, if he, if he does sign a pre-contract and an offer comes in from Blackburn to sign him now, should we accept that offer and let him go, or is he too important to us to keep him here for the rest of the season? I mean, that's that's a tough question. I mean, you know, as I, as I said earlier, I, I think Hedges was was the the player of the year last year in my books. Uh, I, he was the spark uh, whenever we needed it, and, and felt like when he was on the on the field, we were more of a threat. Haven't seen it as much this year, but again, uh, I think we've got more cover. So I, I think if if we get that offer for Hedges and there and it's a pre contract, I, I think. I think you ship hedges away uh, and, and try to get Jenks out there more. And, and, you know, some of these other guys out there, you know, like Baron, as you mentioned, we, we, I feel that that's an area that we could, we, we would be okay. We have some cover uh, if hedges needs to go on. And, and I feel Watkins has, has played that kind of spark role that hedges played last year for, for this group that's been on the field this year. So yeah, I, I would say, I would say uh, Bon Voyage to, to the Welsh wizard. I think people would maybe forget how, limp and impotent we've been without Ryan Hedges the last couple of years whenever he's not been around for usually because of injury let's be honest um so that part's concerning the idea of him leaving I guess as Noel says we've got a little bit more in the way of quality around that area in comparison perhaps last year certainly the year before it depends if the deal works out for us quite simply um if it's just a case of pre-contract then I'm not fussed him staying you know, Kenny McLean was pretty great for us for that last six months. No reason why Hedges couldn't do the same. But if Blackburn or whoever it may be propose a deal that is beneficial to us, allows us to go maybe look in a, in a different market this January to bring in a replacement, then yeah, it's all about making it work for the club. Here's the question then for you. I mean, we're being talked again tonight as we're recording that Aberdeen are going to make a pre-contract offer to Jamie McGrath at St. Mirren. Again, we've heard various different stories on this one um, recently, and I think the indications we've heard would be that we are absolutely very interested in bringing Jamie McGrath to, to, to the club. And I think we'd like to try and make it happen in, um, in this window, if we could. And does that bring up a question, which is, is it worth... Because clearly this, this all depends on the finances, and, and we're missing out on two bumper home crowds, the Dundee and the Rangers game in particular, which the Dundee game in particular is probably the one that's the, the biggest issue because hopefully by the time uh, Rangers roll around on the 17th of January or the 18th, whatever the date is, we will have crowds back in and we will be able to you know, get that money in the door. But the Dundee one would have been a bit of a killer. 
if it's a trade-off for being able to let Hedges go on a on a deal with Blackburn to fund bringing McGrath in in this window, is that a, a worthy trade-off? And like we just touched on it, that the guy I expected to see as our top dribbler, that's such a terrible turn of phrase, but it is what it is. I would have expected to be Hedges, and it's not. And and McGrath placed fourth in the league on this one. So is he the guy that we need to look to to try and link the play from midfield to attack going forward? Are they like for like? I wouldn't have necessarily said so, because I still think Hedges is really more of an out-and-out winger, if I'm honest. He likes to cut inside. I mean, this is showing my level of ignorance towards the uh, fortunes of St. Mary, but is Jamie McGrath not a certain midfielder? He's more of a certain midfielder slash... 10, I so would it's, suggest. So it's not really a let one go for the other question, is it? Probably not. I would probably more see McGrath naturally as a replacement for Ferguson. Yeah, that's my thinking as well. But I don't know if we are necessarily confident that Ferguson will definitely go in this window. Whereas I think it's pretty certain Hedges is signing a pre-contract somewhere else. And so there's a decision to be made about whether he goes on, whether he goes now or, or later. It's just an interesting dilemma, I think, for the club from that perspective. Do you have the opportunity to bring in a guy like McGrath who has potential sell-on value as well going forward? He's a Republic of Ireland international already. I've got to say, he's older than I thought he was. I think he's like 26, isn't he? Even then, the question of sell-on fees are, well, how much will he by that point? No more than Hedges probably does, and that depends on what kind of deal we sign him on to, what his intent is. Uh, Yeah, all these variables. But if it was you in the hot seat, Gav, what would you do? Likewise, if the deals are worthwhile to Aberdeen, if it's not having the piss taken out of us by Blackburn and then having the piss taken out of us by St. Mirren, yeah, sure. 25. So yeah, not a young kid by any means. No, not at all, but I guess he's played a lot of football in, in Ireland. Um, obviously got his grounding there. St. Mirren have done him a world of good coming into the SPFL and playing there. and Clearly demonstrating he can do it. He's got six caps for the Republic of Ireland now. Um, which is not an easy task to do that from the SPFL with a team like St Mirren, in fairness. You have to have something about you to do that. So I think it's an interesting dilemma for the club from that perspective. Let's look at some of the other, I guess what you'd maybe call fringe players in the midfield area, just to have a view on what we think we could be doing with these guys. The two I'm going to focus on are Dylan McGeech and Funzo King-Ojo, purely because the two of them are both out of contract in the summer. Your thoughts on these two guys and what they've done so far in the opening phase of the season? I I felt... And again, this is looking back at the start of the year, I felt Ojo finally had his correct position. Uh, I felt Glass was playing him in the correct spot uh, in the the early parts in in the Europa League games in the early part of this season, and then he kind of went away. Uh, But again, as you guys have commented on on this podcast, he's the Swiss Army knife. You know, wherever you need him, he's going to be, and he's he's never going to be that 9-10 uh, in nine out of 10 kind of guy, but he's going to be a consistent six to seven and on a good day, maybe an eight out of 10 uh, performance out there. So I, I've been, I've been very happy for, for Ojo and, and, and happy with the way he's performed this year. Um, yeah, I felt like he's been in position more than he was, you know, previously with, with uh, the previous management. So uh, I've, I've liked what I've seen out of Ojo for sure. Uh, McGee, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to really say, you know, I have an opinion on him one way or the other. He's just almost like one of those cogs that goes out there and, um, you know, performs, but there's, there's nothing flashy about the game, which is fine. You, you need those, those workhorse kind of guys out there as well. So when you're looking at those two guys, Ojo to the one 
is the one to me that stands out. Um, you know, granted he's got two, two years, he's two years older than McGeeks. And so when you look at the contract and what's going to happen, but uh, Ojo's a guy that I, I would like to see uh, retained if, if, if we want to go that route with him. I'm a little bit in the same field when it comes to McGeek. Like I like parts of it and then it just never really quite clicks for a long period of time. Again, whether that's your form or what's just the fact that he's has issues with injury or fitness. Um, so it's kind of one of those, like, do you just maybe call it a day and let's bring in someone maybe a little bit younger? Should we blood Connor Barron to that position? You know, a guy that we've got very real prospects for and again, could come back to benefit the club, both in terms of the way he plays and also financially. When it comes to Ojo, um, this is a weird one. So again, I, I think like everyone, I've, I remember reading that he was on the left side against Tekken in the first game of the season and thinking like, what the hell are we doing here? And in those initial games where he was playing almost in that advanced role, either on the left or right, I thought it was really good. I think you can make use of his engine, his fitness, his, you know, his running power. When he's played right back out of necessity, I think he's done a very, very good job. Interestingly, the position I'm never convinced with, with him is centre midfield. Centre midfield, yeah, I know. And I'm going to assume, based on what, I think Graham touched on this before, because um, he did an interview earlier in the season when he got back in the team, where he talked about how he had offers to go to England with like Salford or Wrexham and was never going to take them because they weren't going to pay him the money that Aberdeen were. So he's clearly sitting on a pretty decent contract. And I'm sure he wants to negotiate something similar if he wants to stay. Is that money well spent to bring keep a guy who's a little bit in the kind of Chris Clark, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, really? I don't know. So in that sense, again, it comes back to it. The deal needs to work for us, and I'm not sure an extension for Ojo really does unless it's on reduced terms. I have a sneaky feeling that Ojo's probably already made his mind up. He's going back to Belgium or Holland, I think, in the summer. I think he'd already made that decision last summer, it sounded like, in that interview talking about that he was basically going to save his contract at Aberdeen for another year because it was on good money. I think I had heard somewhere else as well that I think he's, a, he's either the highest paid or maybe not any longer with Scott Brown being here. But he was on a very, very, very healthy weekly wage. Um, it was what, 100,000, 200,000 pounds transfer fee when he signed? I couldn't remember that. But I, I, I distinctly remember, I think I've heard it somewhere. I think it might have been Hugh Little, actually, who, who spoke about this, that, that Ojo is one of the highest earners at the club. Certainly was at the time. It's a lot of cash for a club of Cabernet to be paying out on a guy who's not a guaranteed starter every week, necessarily. Um and it's nice to have that utility player who can play a number of different positions and do a relatively solid job. I don't know if I would say he was very, very, very good at right back, Gav. I think that's maybe a bit... Clean sheets? Who did did very well? What are you on about? Well, very, 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 very good is, you know... Hey, 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 hey. There's a right, there's a right back in our squad that can't play right back, so we'll have a centre midfielder doing it. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's done a solid job at right back, is how I would describe it. It's not like being the second incarnation of Bobby Carlos or Cafu, but he's done a very, very good job at right back. I bet Roberto Carlos would rubbish at right back. Like he was a left back, wasn't he? So why have I used him? <laughs> Let's cut that one out. But would Cafu have like squared up to a Dundee United fan? That's why I want to know. I think Cafu would have decked him. <laughs> I think Cafu would have decked him as well, I think. Ojo, I think if you, I think I said it in last week's show or a couple weeks ago, if you could get Ojo on a, an extended deal on significantly reduced wages, I would take yeah. him because he's a great squad filler and can fill in a bunch of different areas but if you can't I think it's probably time that, that he that he leaves Dylan McGeeoch I really 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 like Dylan McGeeoch as a football player 
I really do. I think he's got a lot of class about him. I think he's a very, very good central midfielder. I just wish the loon could keep fit. Every time he comes in for not just Aberdeen, I mean, it's been right the way through his career, in fairness to him. But even like when he came in and played centre midfield when Brown was playing at the centre of the back three in that little run, the 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 Hibs Hearts Rangers run in particular, I thought McGeek was excellent in all those games. Controlled the centre midfield. I think he's got a better range of passing than Lewis Ferguson does. I think he can find incisive passes when he needs to. I think he retains the ball well, never looks harried on the ball, delivers a good set piece. Just wish he could keep fit, unless he can do something in the next three, four months to, to demonstrate that he can, he can maintain a level of fitness. I, I, I feel it'll probably be time for him to move on because, as Gavin said, we've probably got players now starting to come through the youth ranks. Connor Barron's one you're looking at, who might be able to offer that and hopefully... Can, can do so and stay fit on a more regular basis. But I'd love to see it work out for, for Bill McGee. I'm just not entirely sure it's going to. Some more fringe players just there to talk about quickly. Likes of Dean Campbell, Connor McLennan, Niall McGinn out of contract at the end of the season, as is Johnny Hayes. And I'm going to include Johnny Hayes in the midfield area here, although he's basically a left back these days. Just your general thoughts on this collection of four. I mean, Hayes, Hayes and McGinn, uh, you know, great servants to the club you know you know great guys and, and and johnny was tremendous uh meeting my two young boys when we were at the at the club uh last month um but he's just he's just a step or two off you know when he's trying to make the attack now he does cover well because he still has the pace about him with his general speed on that flank uh but when he's he doesn't have the quickness so it, it, it's that's that's a tough one it's gonna be sad to see you know those two guys wind wind down um you know dean campbell I, I like him. Um, my, you know, my oldest son, his first name is Campbell. Uh, it's, it's my mother's maiden name. And so maybe that's why we've got the shine to him. Um, and so I, we, I, we've watched him since he made his debut against Celtic, you know, after, uh, you know, finishing the, the, the test at school in the afternoon and coming in at Pataudry against Celtic. So I, I've had my eye on him for a while. I, I, I like him as a player. Um, you know, I, I know he takes a lot of flack uh, on Twitter uh, from the support, um, but yeah, I, I mean, he's a guy that he was a season ticket holder growing up. I think he loves being part of the club. And I think he does, he does some nice things. He delivers a really nice ball. He switches the field really, really well, um, does some things there. Does he, does he have the pace to keep up uh, with, with the play at this level? You know, that, that could be debated for sure. Um, so yeah, th so those guys, uh, you know, the, the two stalwarts, Hayes and, and McGinn, uh, you know, they might, they might be riding off into the sunset, so to speak. Um, personally, I'd like to see Campbell, you know, con to continue on, but uh, yeah, it's, there's, there's a level of, of the full game that needs to be kept up. So it'll be interesting to see. On McLennan, that was one you missed. Oh, McLennan. Yeah. Boy, McLennan. Yeah. Again, I almost feel bad, you know, similarly to how I was critical of Ferguson, but for a guy that's a full, you know, Scotland international or going to, you know, play that role, I, I expect more out of him. And it's it just, uh, he's, he's got those flashes that, that are great out there. Maybe it's just, he needs to see more time out there, you know, with the injuries that he's had, he, he hasn't, you know, felt like he's given his full self, you know, we haven't seen the full uh, Connor McLennan out there. Um, and um, so, you know, maybe I'm you know, being a little critical on him about that, but uh, you know, he's a guy that I would just like to see a little bit more out of. Um, you know, he's got that speed. He's got the, the ability, the one-on-one, -on -one, he's got the confidence, but it just doesn't seem to all click at the same times. Gav. Yes, sir. Um, okay. When it comes to, sorry, I was just doing my little, a little bit of research there. Uh, when it comes to, <laughs> don't McGinn, say that this podcast is not prepared. 
when it comes to McGinn and Hayes, I think I will just reiterate what Noel said. It should not be forgotten how important both these guys have been to the club in terms of bringing us forward, um, giving us a level of success or consistency in a much uh, higher echelon of the table than we were previously used to. McGinn, don't really understand why he was signed for a one-year extension. I guess experience, whatever. That's all well and good, but I think he's he's done. I think he's maybe scored one goal in the last two seasons. It's it's not great stats. Johnny Hayes. I mean, if he wants to stick around again, on this is a weird one because when he was finishing up at Aberdeen in his first spell, that last season, I, th- I remember thinking something. Like, he's becoming a much better technical footballer while the pace is perhaps leaving him. <laughs> I know and I could see fun. like a reason in which like I could see why he could maybe extend his career beyond where he's not having to rely on his pace. I'm thinking like we got absolutely hammered one game by Celtics 3-1, but Hayes like just beat a couple of men and just like placed one at the top corner past Craig Gordon. It was absolute beauty of a goal. And then he's come back and uh, yeah, it's just not there anymore. And it's kind of, kind of a little bit sad to see that his footballing brain just appears to have absolutely just ejected from his body and been replaced by, by something else. If he wants to stay here on reduced terms, like, I, I would be okay with that. I'm, I'm okay with him staying for experience and, you know, but then again, that's now him again. So am I okay with that? Well, it's weird though, because he can, he can get down the field and he can make that mistake or that blunder where he's trying to do the one-on-one move that he could have done 10 years ago. Uh, and, and he loses it and he gets back and he covers fine. He just, it's just that it's just like, it's just the spark isn't there to connect the spark plug. And he interesting one, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a really weird one, Johnny Hayes, for me, because first of all, he's a top guy, an absolute top of a guy. And that doesn't you know, mean that you, you can't be criticized for your performance on the pitch, but he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a genuine top lad, Johnny Hayes. It's weird, though, this year, especially this year, I've noticed it more. As, as Noel says, his pace is still there it, on the main. It's not really disappeared, but it's like his footballing brain or the, the part of his brain that connects to his feet when it comes to t- try to do something with the ball at his feet has just been severed and it's like his it's almost like his mind can't catch up with what his feet are actually doing anymore and there are times you watch it and you're just like i don't know what's happened there like it's, it's kind of painful to watch but normally you would expect it to go as gavin just said the other way around that he'd become a bit more technically you know sound and on it because he wouldn't be relying on his pace any longer but it's kind of gone the other way it's really odd to watch i don't really know what's going on for me, as much as it pains me to say it, even with the experience, I I don't think it's the right thing to keep Johnny Hayes at the club. I think we should look at Kenzie as being our future in terms of left back on the left hand side, and then try and find some backup, make make McKenzie the full time left back and and work from there. I guess um, Kieran Ingwenya, he's a left back, isn't he? And Ingwenya is a left back. So yes. again, doing a good job at Kelty. So maybe that's something we can look forward to in the summer and. Blood him into the first team. Definitely. Uh, on the other two, Gav? Uh, so, Connor McLennan, so much is there that I like. He's got a really, you know, proper modern footballer in many ways, you know, good size, good pace, good ability, and he's got the ball under control. Uh, scored some good goals for Aberdeen, but just never really put it together on a consistent enough basis. And some of his performances as of late have just made me think, like, well, is this guy really 
you know, he's been in the first team in his debut in 20, 2016. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> 2016. I've got a feeling they might have got this wrong. It could very well have been, to be fair. 2016. But he kind of first really came in the team around about 2018, I think. He's been here for a while. He's just never really put together a run of form. It makes you think this guy is going to be like a, a first team player for Aberdeen. At the age of 22, I think that's kind of concerning. So my feeling there, I mean, he's got another year left with the deal, doesn't he? Yeah, he's here till the summer of 2023. Yeah, I remember that. Dean Campbell, not good enough to be an Aberdeen player. That's all I have to say on that. Yeah, it's I my mean, heart. Yeah. Likewise, likewise, debut May 2017. He's been in around the first team for four and a half years. I struggle to count on two hands the number of games that he's played well. I mean, we, we spoke about it at the start of the season. That I think we spoke about it in episode one, potentially. It was a massive season this year for Conor McLennan, we felt. It was a chance for maybe to come in, a new manager, new opportunities, come in and show what he can do, really try and you know grab it by the scruff of the neck and really make a go of things. And it's just not quite happened. And there was a moment in the game against Dundee after he came on, and the ball got played out to him on the wing, and it, it took him about fucking four or five attempts to control the ball. And it was like, it was a really straightforward five or six yard pass into him. And you know, you're just like, that to me kind of sums up Conor McLean's time at Aberdeen. I think once he finally gets the ball under control, he can look quite dangerous. I think he's a very instinctive player is what I get the feeling from him. And I know that he came through the youth set up as a striker and as a 10, and he's been kind of shuffled out to the wing. And I don't know if maybe we need to think about moving him back into the centre of the park and playing off of a striker. Maybe the secret to what we've been looking for, the answer to the question about who plays with Ramirez is already in the squad. Maybe it's Conor McLennan. It's probably not, um, but we don't know because we've never really seen him have an opportunity in that area. But now, as you're old mentioned this, remember Brightleby, go away. Yeah, he played well when he came on. It was his, you know, great touch taking the ball at the sky and then setting up Ramirez. So it's, it's frustrating because there's ability clearly there. Absolutely. But yeah, it's just not happening on a consistent basis and you wonder... At what point do you say, well, you've had enough chances, mate, and maybe it's time to move on? I have a slightly differing view from Gav on Dean Campbell. I agree with you. I don't know if he's necessarily shown enough to this point to say he deserves to be a first-team player at Aberdeen Football Club. I I think people need to separate the fact that Dean Campbell is a, a season ticket holder of the club and he was this and that, and he's a boyhood Aberdeen fan. That's all well and good and to be commended. And I'd rather we had more Aberdeen fans in our first 11 than there not be Aberdeen fans in our first 11. But at the same time, I've been an Aberdeen season ticket holder for however long I I care to remember. And I'm frankly not good enough to play in there. And I would expect, even if I did play there and people told me I wasn't good enough to be there, that I would accept that and, you know, take on the chin and move on from it because that's not where I am. I do think, I feel like Campbell especially... McLennan, I think, had a very brief loan spell at Brecon earlier in his career, I think. But he's never had another punt out there. I kind of feel that both Campbell and McLennan both need to run a game. And, and it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to, to, to send them out on loan in January to like a championship team or something, a, a lower in the league SPFL premiership side, and, and get them game time and get them kind of playing games week in, week out and see what they can do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a bad idea. I mean, I, I think... Uh, you know, I think that would that would 
do both of them really well to, to get consistent play, you know, not be wondering, are they in the squad? Are they going to get subbed on? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, that'd be an interesting way to look at it as well to see each of them get some extended play, uh, you know, championship side and, and see if they can string something together. Cause I think for both of them, they just, they haven't had that chance at Aberdeen and that, that could be a indicator of whether they deserve that chance moving forward. I don't get the impression though, of either of them, there's been an appetite to actually go out with one. I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell from us. I mean, I'm just thinking because we're we're gonna talk with a guy next week who made it pretty clear that his entire career he wanted to go play if he wasn't going to play for the first team where he was. Yeah. If you're not, you know, hammering on the door saying, "Listen, if I'm not on the team, then just get me out and loan," you're not giving the manager that option to make. But then we don't know if they've not been. I get the impression that certainly, probably even both of them are quite happy just being at Aberdeen. The fact that they've been here for so long, been part of the first team, and never. Never broken into the team, but never like showing any desire to leave. Says to me they're quite happy with what, what yeah, their roles are. The thing for me, the thing I'm always going to say about Dean Campbell that I'm going to put in his defence box. What I will say is that Dean Campbell has played and and had impressive performances at Ibrox on a number of occasions now. Actually, um, in the two-two draw there um, early in the season, Dean Campbell was one of the best players on the pitch that night. Um, he has it in his locker to step up and to play in high-profile, high-pressure games of football like that and not look out of place for being... And he's still a kid at the end of the day as well. He's still a young lad. He has it in his locker, and I would just love to see him go and play some games out on loan and see what he can do and then come back and then we make a call about whether he's got a future in this setup or not. At the moment, anyone coming through the Aberdeen anyone coming through the Aberdeen ranks for set midfield has got a lot of people in front of them. They've got Scott Brown. They've got Lewis Ferguson. They've probably got Dylan McGee. They've probably got Ojo purely because of the fact Ojo's on a decent wedge. So there's pressure to play him. Campbell also came through at a time where Shinny, where McLean. There was that lull where there wasn't, we didn't look particularly strong in the set midfield, where you'd maybe be hoping he would step up a little bit more, but it, it didn't happen. Is it just natural to assume that I think because of the players we're talking about, because of the players who may leave or depart in January or they're going to depart in the summer, whether that's because contracts run out or whatever, Midfield might be an area we see a bit of movement in January. It all depends, as you say, on comings and goings. As things stand, centre midfield is not an area I think we need to be prioritising. If we can get better options, of course, go for it. But yeah, it would be the it would be the flanks. It would be out wide. I'd be looking to to get more creativity into the team. Let's move back then, one step back again in the defence. So it's another area of the team that attracted a lot of interest again throughout the season for leaking goals, and this certainly appeared to be the case in the early stages of the campaign. But I think it's fair to say in recent weeks, the partnership of McCrory and Bates is beginning to look better and better every week. And what it actually means now is that Don sits slap bang in the middle of the league in terms of average goals conceded, 1.2 per match. But that said, we sit in 10th spot in the league out of 12, remember, on clean sheets. We've only got four this season so far. Now, obviously, injuries have played a large part in some of that. We've played for a large part of the season without our, I guess, deemed first-choice fullbacks and Jack McKenzie and Calvin Ramsey. So that's meant Johnny Hayes, Funes Wojo have had to fill in a fullback. Andy Considine's obviously missed a big chunk of the season and he's not going to be back anytime soon, although he did, does appear to be making good progress. Declan Gallagher's come in, we touched on it last week. He's not really set the header on fire in terms of performance levels. So, gents, I'll put it out to you. Where do you think we are at this moment in time in terms of our defense. You know, it, it's, it's 
it's funny looking at those, those stats and, and the clean sheets. And we, we tend to give up just goals where it feels like the, the defense loses the guys in the box. Uh, and, and for some of these players, you, you, you wouldn't expect that from, you know, from a Declan Gallagher, from, from Bates, from McCrory. So it, it does leave some questions, but then when you look at it and you say the names and you say, you know, McKenzie, Ramsey, Bates, McCrory, I mean, th- those guys are, are, you know, in my opinion, as, as, as good as we could expect, uh, you know, level of players. Um, and, and I've got to say that the Bates and McCrory, um, partnership has really, really looked strong. I think Bates, um, you know, I think you guys pointed out that something that I hadn't noticed, you know, on on an earlier episode is that he had no preseason. So he really didn't come to form until probably the end of November. And that's oddly enough when he started to look like, you know, the, the, the class guy that he is back there and, um, even scoring the goal. So, um, you know, that's been good. And, and I, you know, I mentioned it earlier talking about Ferguson, uh, we expected, you know, more out of Ferguson to be the guy that's going to take control of the, the matches. Uh, the Livingston match, we were able to sit in the red shed and we were down low. And um, I was really, really impressed with Ross McCrory, the way that he is taking control of the field. I expected to see Joe Lewis be the one that was going to be barking the, the orders out and getting upset when a, when a man is missed, but it was McCrory. And, and so McCrory's leadership and, and the evolution that we've seen from him uh, a, as a leader out there has been really, really strong. And, and it's been really, really refreshing to see him uh, sort of step up and take that leadership role back there. And, and that developing relationship with Bates has been really strong to see. So those two guys have really stood out to me for sure. But again, it's just been confusing on those goals that we've let in to, to have the, the 10 out of 12 clean sheets in the league, they, they're just, they're just kind of strange. How do you, how do you lose the guy? How do you not track that guy? Uh, and cause it seems that we, we let in some really, some goals that we really shouldn't be letting in uh, this season. Absolutely. Um, as reflected in the Hibs game, when you know the game's decided by Declan Gallagher not doing his job on that occasion, something's happened too many, too many times the whole season. Yeah. Again, I'm surprised to see that we've considered on average 1.2 goals a game. Because it did seem like a, a while we were leaking goals from left, right, and center. I guess the thing there is like, in some ways, you know, dissecting attack, midfield, defense, goalkeeper, it's all about the combination of things and how many times we've lost this season by one goal because of, you know, typically because of us either us getting ourselves into trouble or a defender, defensive player not doing his job. I think, um, on the whole, I would say that, yeah, the defense has definitely stepped up in the last month or so. It's going to provide some intriguing selection dilemmas, perhaps, for for Glass going forwards. Because, you know, there's maybe it's just coincidence. Maybe it's a case of, you know, Joe Lewis getting his confidence back. Ross McCrory just continuing to excel in that position. David Bates getting his fitness and his confidence back. But, you know, Ojo and Hayes playing fullbacks has coincided with some some better defensive performances. I do think that, you know, McKenzie and Ramsey clearly are our best options in those positions. But it's an interesting one in terms of just giving the manager something to think about. And also just going forward, it means we don't have to just rely so heavily on the both of them at the relatively young age they both are. We don't run that risk of burning them out at a young age. You know, McKenzie, we've already seen, has had some injury problems. Ramsey, likewise. Um, so... That strength in the defense is starting to please me. I would like to see, hopefully, Andrew Constantine continues his recovery and he can be back in contention as soon as possible. 
Declan Gallagher we talked about last week. Everyone knows our thoughts on him. Um, I think going forward, yeah, I would suggest recruitment perhaps in central defence could be something I would look at. It's an interesting one, I guess, because if we'd run this segment like two months ago or maybe two and a half months ago, we'd probably all be going, fucking hell, the defence is where the massive issues are. And now I kind of feel like, go, well, actually, I don't feel so bad about it. There's, there's one massive elephant in the room, which we'll talk about in a second. But I feel that all of a sudden McCrory Bates look solid. They look good. We don't know how far Considine is away from coming back. That might have a factor in what we do in January. Because you've said, Gav, centre defence might be something you would look at. I can only imagine we would look at centre defence if we felt that A, Declan Galker had to be moved on in January whether that's out on loan or whatever, because I imagine Declan Gallagher is picking up a pretty decent wedge. Um, having come from Muddle, a Muddle captain, Scotland International, he won't be here on the cheap. So there's probably not a lot of budget there, especially with Considine, Mikey Devlin's picking up whatever peanuts he's picking up for being here. I don't imagine Bates came cheap. He would have had a decent deal at Hamburg. Um, he probably had other interests, I would imagine, in Scotland as well. Um, McCrory, I don't think, would have been a cheap signing either at the time. So there might not be a huge amount of budget there in the centre of the, the defence. But at the moment, I don't necessarily feel too bad about it if we can keep Bates and McCrory fit and if Considine's not too far away from coming back, hopefully. I'd feel very different if it felt like we're going to have to rely on Gallagher as our centre back um, backup at the moment. But that's not to say some games, blah, 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 might not help out there. That's more me going along with the thinking of, as you mentioned, perhaps there might be interest in Gallagher. Yeah. I think if there was interest in Gallagher, I think we would do something. If he were if he were to leave either again on loan or on a permanent transfer, then I'd feel much better if we had another option. I Scott Brown did well there, no doubt about it, but I've still said I'd prefer Scott Brown to be in midfield. Uh Considine, you know, he's obviously got to get back into full training, then get up to match fitness. That could take, you know, who knows how long. And yeah. well, you know, Devlin is Michael Devlin. The the wild card on all this at the moment is probably Calvin Ramsey. So as we sit and record this, it appears that Sky News are reporting that Nathan Patterson will be leaving Rangers for Everton for a £16 million transfer. And I would just like to say I'm going to miss the mental gymnastics on Twitter of the average Rangers fan explaining to you why Nathan Patterson is the best right back in the league, but he can't get ahead of James Tavernier. That in itself raises a very interesting point for Aberdeen's negotiating position with a lot of clubs now. Because if that does go through at 16 million, okay, Nathan Patterson's been capped for Scotland, so he has that in the bank over Ramsey. I'll, I'll agree that because it's a pure fact. Now, for me, and I'm probably biased about this because I'm an Aberdeen fan, so we might have to run a Calvin Ramsey conversation or a Nathan Patterson conversation here. Ramsey's a better player than Patterson. They're both very, very good fullbacks, as much as it pains me to say that about a player who plays for that lot. Well, well, sometimes he plays for them. Yeah, who sits on the bench for that lot. For me, Ramsey's a better player. And it leads me to a very interesting position now for Aberdeen to say, well, if this boy's gone for 16, we shouldn't be looking for anything less than 12, 13. Let's put a bit of a premium on the Scotland caps here, if you want to. And, and you know, we all know that Celtic and just can attract a better premium for their players because of just their reputation and name and all that. But Ramsey's under contract at Aberdeen until 2024, I think. I want to say four, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we've got plenty of bargaining power here. Do we think we see January out with Calvin Ramsey still at Aberdeen Football Club? My instinct when the interest started appearing, you know, in the in the typical gossip columns and that, that is 
he will be signed by a club, perhaps in England, perhaps in Europe, who knows, and then loaned back to us for the rest of the season. And that's where I still stand. I, I, I would pose to you guys, because you're more in touch with this on the day-to-day stuff, but what has what the club learned uh, from the Scott McKenna saga that we could that we could apply here to Ramsey to make sure that we benefit you know at the peak because it feels to me and this is me from a distance and and not seeing the intricacies of this stuff the the way that you guys do but I feel that the club lost out on McKenna I I felt that we stuck we held on to him for too long and didn't get the best return that we could have on him Um, and, and I think it showed up in his play after you know those things went up and down and there was a deal on the table and whatever it was so I I would my thought is to approach Ramsey uh, and it'd be interesting to see if this board is more aggressive with him uh, in that market than they than they they were with McKenna. I think the thing that maybe it's lost with McKenna is that the peak offer that we hear about was the Aston Villa seven million pound transfer, but that was a loan with an option to buy. But it wasn't a. But it also wasn't a firm option to buy. Yeah. So it wasn't well. An option to buy is an option to buy. If they don't take it, they don't take it. Yeah, what I mean was it wasn't... I think the way that people tried to pretend that that deal was structured was that it was a £7 million transfer with an, like, an initial loan or some shit, and then they would they would have to buy him. There was some reason why they couldn't buy him at the time. Might even just have been a case the time that they had. Because it was, it, was, it, was, it was before we went to play in Europe, because we went ahead. It might have been Cyprus. No, it was Rijeka. Or Rijeka. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. And it left us with no chance to bring in anyone, even if we did look at it as being a good transfer. That was part one of that, was that we were left with no time to get a backup player in. So there was that part. But there was another part about it that I think people seem to think we had a cast iron guarantee of like a £7 million. No, it was a loan with an option to buy. Yeah. Yeah. And so for the club to have that with no guarantee about it, a day before the transfer window closed or whatever it was, I can kind of see why the club didn't go for it. And I don't know if there was any other firm offers on the table. I don't think we've ever heard about any other firm offers on the table that eclipsed that. I can remember nothing that eclipsed what he eventually went for anyway. No. I think, you know, no, it's a good question. I think what we've seen from Dave Cormack is, in terms of his brinkmanship as a chairman, the fact he got two million quid out of Birmingham City for Sam Cosgrove says to me that I think at least for all the things we've leveled at Dave about stuff this season I think when it comes to negotiating a deal for our players he's probably about as good as we've had I don't see Stuart Millen getting two million for Sam Cosgrove let's just put that out there so I would like to think that if we go if, if Calvin Ramsey is going to be sold that we will get a very very good deal from him the, the, the positive here appears to be that there are a number of clubs interested in him there are a number of clubs from not just England from I think Eintracht Frankfurt have been linked with them today Good clubs as well, big, big clubs at the same time with 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 big pockets. I think I'm right in thinking that Ramsey would class as a homegrown player for um, English clubs as well. So he's got a premium from that perspective. If this Nathan Patterson deal goes through at that type of level, I think that adds another level to it from our perspective. I'd be astonished if he goes for less than... I say astonished, I would be irate if he went for less than 10 million. Real, Really? Prepare to be irate. I would be yeah. absolutely fucking irate if he went for less than 10 million, given that Patterson has gone for 16. I think he's a much, much better player than Ramsey. I th- than, than Patterson, he's got more potential. The kid's got it all. I would. I mean, this is the thing for me. See if Aberdeen could actually keep a hold of him 
for for the, even the rest of the season. I would like to see us do a Gareth Bale with Calvin Ramsey and move him up the park a little bit further. Don't play him as a right back. Don't play him as a wing back. Play him further up the park. He could almost be the replacement for Johnny uh, for Ryan Hedges that we're looking for. Well, Stephen Glass, you've had that advice for free. Yeah. <laughs> but then here's one. If he goes, if he goes in January, and if we don't get him loaned back to us, where do we go in terms of right back? Do we decide that King Ojo fills that for the remainder of the season and we kind of see where we get to in the summer? From Phil, it's the answer is not Jacker. Um, <laughs> right. So um, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's no one really off the top of my head right now, even if we just stick within our own little league and say Scottish football, right back that stands out. Um, I like Tanzer at St. Mirren, but I think he's a left back. The left back. So that's, so that's uh, going to help. Within the within the organization right now, Funza Ojo is the best option by a fucking country mile. Yeah. Then it comes down to the recruitment. I am sure we, everyone at that club must know of the interest in Ramsey. I'd like to think they do anyway. Um, so we're surely, you know, creating a list of options for Stephen Glass or Dan Mulberry or Dave Cormack, whoever calls the shots, to uh, say, well, yeah, that's the guy. There is, of course, the curveball. We do have a right back on the books. <laughs> not Jack Gar. Ronnie. He has spent time in Atlanta. <laughs> Big Ronnie uh, Hernandez. <laughs> Given that Ronnie is currently closer to Noel than us, then I'd say that's probably not a chance of that happening. <laughs> we can just forget that name, let's be honest. <laughs> but who knows? Everyone. I mean, you sell you sell Ramsey, you decide, you know what? We're not gonna we're not gonna go and spend cash. I mean, we need somebody who wants Hernandez in order for him to be taken somewhere. I don't think wild horses could get Ronnie Hernandez on a plane to Aberdeen anytime soon. So <laughs> it'd be an interesting one, you know, uh, whether we decide that we bring Hernandez back and at least for six months. And then we say to him, like, you can then go back to the States in, in six months' time if we can find someone that'll take you. Because I, I think the, the chat from Atlanta appears to be he's not going back to Atlanta. No, I saw somehow he was in the draft. He's in the draft? Somehow. I don't really understand how this works, but he's currently in the draft as he's like unregistered by Atlanta. But he's our player. The, ML the, the MLS has a strange allocation system of who, you know, international players. Yeah, so that very well could be. Unless we've said to the MLS... Presumably for that to happen, we would have had to say to the MLS, he can go in your draft because he's still our player. I don't think so. No. I don't think so. Because the, the rights, all MLS players are actually paid from a central clearinghouse from the MLS. So his, his game checks aren't signed by Arthur Blank and Atlanta United. They're signed by Don Garber and MLS. So the, the, the agreement that we have is probably actually with MLS. So they probably are within their rights to, to do that. But even if he's our player, though? His, it would depend when his loan contract is finished. Yeah. But how would that work though then? So that they would say, right, here you go, here's the guys in the draft, but Aberdeen who actually own him as a player can still say, no, 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 we want back. Presumably in that scenario, we've yeah. said to the MLS, if he is in the draft, Gab, as you yeah. say, presumably we've had to say to them, you could put him in there. Whoever picks him up, whoever decides to pick him up, I they then I, talk to I us really, about. I really don't know. I That's just, mad. I, I saw it because like Atlanta announced their whole... Departures, their departures yeah, list, yeah. which you know looked very different from our one, and I just I remember <laughs> noticing that he was on a draft, and I was like, "How could that happen?" But as Noel says, if he's actually owned technically more or less by the MLS, then it doesn't really matter. 
okay, so we probably all agree Ronnie Hernandez is not the move. If if Ramsey goes, do we decide? Do we think we need a replacement right back, or do we think we can, you know, do we buzz it out to the end of the season with with Ojo? We could get by, but an injury to Ojo would leave us horrifically exposed. So I'd be looking for a replacement. Let's move to the final position, the number one. Again, another area that had loads of question marks over it, especially in that run that went from kind of September through most of October, where we were just fucking garbage. There were signs that Joe Lewis was really, really struggling at that point, and that obviously resulted in him being dropped for the home match against Celtic. Illness kept him out of the match at Dens Park. Gary Woods came in, shipped four goals in those two games. Um, Lewis was then reinstated straight after. Kind of since then, it feels as though Joe Lewis has kind of started to begin to recapture the form that was kind of common in his initial few years at the club. Was it um, a Celtic away game, which we which we lost, obviously? But I remember thinking in the highlights, it looked like Joe Lewis had done his work really well. And yeah. Since then, I've seen nothing that's concerned me at all. I think I can't think of the last goal I've seen where I can say Joe Lewis was at fault. Um, we were. <laughs> We had the ABZFP Christmas night out last week and we were discussing. I've seen some people say that Joe's was at fault for the Lee Griffiths free kick. No, 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 no. All I can say is the people that are watching that, are you on fucking crack? Like, that was an unbelievable hit. Yeah. I mean, you know, disgusting bastard that he is. Unbelievable hit. Joe Lewis did nothing wrong in that situation. It's just, you've just got to turn around and say, listen, fair play. I've seen some people as well criticize the fact there was a gap in the wall and say that Lewis can organize the wall. It's like, of course there's a gap in the wall. If you've ever played football at any sort of level, when there's a free kick that far out, the keeper's always going to leave a gap in the wall so he can see the ball. Now, Griffiths, in fairness to him, it's a beastly hit. And he, he, he puts it through that wall and the swerve it takes in the last five yards is ridiculous. Anyone that's sitting blaming Joe Lewis for that goal needs their head checked. I, 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 I just, I can't fathom that. That's just, that's people picking on someone for the sake of picking on them. I tend to agree with you, Gav. I think since since Lewis has come back into the, 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 the first team after those two games out, I can't think of a goal that we conceded that I would sit and go, that's the keepers. The keeper should have dealt with that better. I can remember that he had a couple of shaky moments against Motherwell at home which one of which kind of indirectly led to a goal. But beyond that, yeah, nothing that uh, concerns me. Been happy with the consistency he's shown as of late. It's a little bit like Joe Lewis of old. So yeah, happy there. I think we talked about earlier on, only four clean sheets in the league. That kind of tells a story in itself. Um, interestingly, Lewis ranks lowest in the league for total saves per match. Average is only about 1.3. But in a way, that kind of tells a story in itself because anyone that's watched us this season would tell you that we don't actually concede a lot of opportunities to opposing teams. And so you'd kind of hope he doesn't have to make that many saves. And to put that into context, the 10th and 11th stoppers in that list are Joe Hart and Al McGregor, which bears out that narrative to an extent. The teams who don't concede opportunities, their goalkeepers don't have to make saves, so therefore they don't make that many on average. Fine. Now, I think at the start of the season, there were a few shots that went past Joe Lewis that I thought, mm, I, I think the keeper could have done better there. But since that point, I think as well, we spoke about it already, this season, there's been very few goals this season where we've like, th- th- we've shipped goals this season due to stupid individual errors. 
which have kind of left the goalkeepers exposed to an extent. Like you look at Portis's one at Easter Road. Lewis can't do anything with that one. It's a point blank range header. He can't do anything with it. That's that's purely down to Declan Gallagher. I mean, have we seen Lewis just generally improve as the season's progressed, as he gets more used to having a settled defence in front of him and a defence in front of him that are starting to step up and, and, and know their roles and understand what they're meant to be doing? And I'm looking at McCrory and I'm looking at Bates in particular. Are we seeing now the three of those form quite a good bond and understanding, which does take time. People keep on looking at this and going, they should be able to do it straight away. For Joe Lewis, that's two guys in front of him. He's never played with in those positions before. For McCrory, it's the same. For Bates, it's the same. They're all having to learn as they go. Should we just have expected that? And are, are we now starting to see, hopefully, the benefits of that? Oh, it's worth mentioning as well. They're, they're being asked to do, and certainly in Joe Lewis's case, a variation of his job. You know, it's not the same old job he did under Derek McGuinness. It's all about being a little bit more clever with his distribution with the ball. And, you know, that's a huge ask for any goalkeeper at the age that Joe Lewis is. I don't think it's any coincidence at all that, yeah, his form improving in line with Ross McCrory and David Bates becoming a settled back two. Yeah, I don't think there's any coincidence in that at all. And it bears well the rest of the season going forward. I think they're, uh, it's, a, it's a back three that could be at Aberdeen for, for quite some time. No, your thoughts on, on Joe Lewis? Yeah, Gary, I, I was right with you. You know, the start of the season, I thought, oh no, I mean, he's, he's 34. He's, he's making some gaffes. He's, he's, a, he's a step off. You know, even on some of the saves that he was making, it felt like he was just a step off, but um, he really, you know, reclaimed his, his spot and, and has looked, you know, fresh and, 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 you know, I don't want to say completely different, but he, he wasn't making those little, you know, little steps that can, can really expose you. And, and you know, to, to your point there, it's the defense is leaving him, you know, very vulnerable, you know, at times. Um, but now with that consistent play and the partnership between Bates and McCrory, maybe, maybe it is a threesome, you know, a little, uh, menage rather than just the, uh, the, the, the duo, <laughs> you know, we, we said the partnership of Bates and McCrory, but you know, might, there might be a threesome going on there that we should give that due respect to, because, uh, that, that very well could be what's happening. And it's great to see, but my, my question would be those, you know, how long, you know, what's, what's our plan after Joe Lewis? And maybe that's not something to address here. Cause we're looking just at the second half of this season, but I do worry a little bit about what the, the long-term plan is um, with Joe Lewis and, and the goalkeeping position. So he signed a five-year deal not that long ago. Can't exactly remember what it was. Um, but yeah, I'd agree. I mean, it's a good question. It's a very good question. He's not, it's not a priority again for me, but you know, if there's a Joe Lewis of five, six years ago out there, we can't, you know, out of sentiment say, well, we're just going to stick with Joe Lewis. Let's go and get the next one and the yeah. one after that. Um, again, the point that I would make for this this upcoming window, we need to be looking at our competition we provide Joe Lewis because yeah, as yeah. it stands, we he doesn't have any in my mind. I agree on this one. I mean, I said it last week. I, I If we could, I would be looking to get Gary Woods shipped off the books in January. I'd look to try and bring in someone. But that in, Noel's raised a very good point about this is, is the succession planning. Tom Ritchie is very, very highly rated within the club. I know that for a fact. Um, he's doing well at Huntley. Huntley are kind of struggling a little bit this season, Heitel League, but he's doing pretty well there by all accounts. I, I would kind of like to see us even bring in somebody for six months on a short-term deal with a view to making Tom Ritchie our number two next season if, if the club feels he's ready to step up to that. It's a big, a big, big leap to go from... Highland League to sit on the bench for the Premiership, but I know the club 
I've got high, high hopes of Tom Ritchie. Well, I, I would just add, though, if, if I could, about the goalkeeping. This is an area where I would hope to see the American connections work out really well, um, because I think on an international scale, one place where U.S. training is pretty good, I think, is a goalkeeping spot. So I think if there's a way for us to work with Atlanta United or whoever it may be, um, I think it would be pretty neat to see an American trained uh, goalkeeper, you know, enter, you know, U18, U21 squads or something like that, just to to, to see how that goes in, in the coming years for that long term succession plan. I think all I'd say there is like, I know that I like, like yourself, I know Tom Rich is highly rated, um, but well, he's a very young man. He's what, 18, 19 or so at the moment. It's unheard, it's pretty unheard of for guys that young to go into first team squads at the, at the top level of a country and, make an impact immediately. So that would be interesting. It would show the conviction, I guess, that the, the management and the club have to this commitment of, of blooding young players. If they're good enough, they're old enough. Absolutely, definitely. So all in all, um, I'm aware that this has gone a little bit further longer than we were maybe expecting it to, as is our want, as is our way on this podcast. The areas that we think we really need to address in this, in this window coming up. Priority, P1. Creativity. I think that's the answer. That's the answer, whether it's in the midfield or up top, for sure. Creativity. Creativity. That's been that's been the number one priority pretty much since the end of the August transfer window, in my mind. I like it. That was a nice, short, sharp answer. I completely agree with it. I, I don't have anything to argue about that. Um, creativity and a backup to Christian Ramirez, I would suggest. I think we need someone else up there. I think what I'd say is, like, regarding defence, we've seen us chop and change too much. I think well, I want us just to be settled in that department. And yeah, bring in improvements to help Ramirez score or to take the weight off of him. Definitely. Your player of the season so far, guys. Oof. That, I mean, that's a tough question. I mean, that's why I'm here. Yeah, I know. I mean, so if man, I, I think the player of the month for December was Bates. Uh, but for the whole for the whole season, I oof. <laughs> <laughs> Gavin, you got one on the on the tip of your tongue? I'll use your uh, I'll use your thinking time there. Um, it's one of those like no one's stood out as being an excellent performer all year through. I think I'd go along with Twitter because we put this question out earlier. Ross McCrory, I think, has grown the most through the season, uh, developed into a really despite everyone saying let's get him in midfield and listen, part of me still thinks that as well, but developed into a very very good centre back. Um, thriving in the back two with, with David Bates as well. So he would get my vote for this one. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talking that out, I think that's, that's the way you have to go. I mean, Ramirez uh, can finish and he's got the goals and the numbers to, to show it. Um, but when you're looking at on a whole, I think McCrory, you can't go wrong with McCrory. He's, he's evolved as, as the leader on the park um, and, and really in control back there, which has been, been nice to see that evolution of him and, and his play has kept up with it as well. It's an easy one for me. Uh, Ramirez gets all the headlines because he scores goals. Scott Brown gets plaudits for the shithousery. But it's it's Ross McCrory for me every day of the week. Um, he's evolved from what I thought looked like a really shaky experiment start of the season. I'm going to give the management team some real kudos here, actually, for this, because at the start of the season, it was very easy to turn around and say, this is not working. McCrory's never a centre-half. Yada, yada. Let's not do it. Let's abandon that. They've stuck with it. They obviously saw something, whether it's stubbornness or whether it's because they they, they truly saw something in McCrory that made them think, we work with this, we get there, we'll, it'll work. 
credit to Stephen Glass and his 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 management team for this one. McCrory for me is by far and away our best player of the season in terms of improvement. No point on it. Leadership qualities. I always thought Ross McCrory was a bit of a Rolls Royce player in the centre of the park in midfield. I think he's becoming even more of that now at centre half. I'm looking forward to way more of that as we go forward. You're one to watch for the remainder of the campaign. Mine would be Marley Watkins. I, I, I said it earlier. I think as, as his second half of the season goes on, I think that is how the, the fate of the club is going to go on. So I'm expecting a lot out of him and uh, he would be the one that I would keep an eye on to see. He's going to be the bellwether uh, to, to what goes on with the club for the second half. This answer could change uh, depending on transfer activity throughout January. So I might update it as we go along. <laughs> but um, as it stands now, I'm intrigued by the language that was used when he was recalled from his loan spell. So Connor Barron for me. I want to see if he's going to come in and actually be part of the first team and even you know, get into that 11. I like it. I'm going to go balls out here, Gav. I'm not going to wait for the transfer window to finish. Ronnie Hernandez. My one to watch. <laughs> it's going to be Jamie McGrath. Let's move on. Or that guy from Sweden. <laughs> or that guy from Sweden. No, I'm very aware of the fact we've taken loads of your time up tonight. It's Sunday afternoon for you. Um, you've probably got way better things to be doing than talking to us. But I thought it'd be really good just to talk to you about your recent pilgrimage back to Aberdeen and the kind of experience it brought to you and to your, your family. It's fair to say that your, your journey captured the minds of Aberdeen Twitter. And that's not a thing that's easily done if you, if you know Aberdeen Twitter. Um, I'm sure it was probably helped by the fact you saw two wins out of two. So most people probably just think you're a good luck charm. Um, just talk to us a little bit, if you don't mind, about your kind of initial upbringing where your own love for the Dons kind of came from? Yeah, well, it's it's definitely multi-generational. Um, so my father, uh, my parents are both Americans. So I'll, I'll put that out there, you know, right away. Um, and my father was in Washington, D.C. in the late 1960s um, and uh, was following the the Washington Whips. And, you know, come to, to realize that after he went to a game or two, he realized that that was actually Aberdeen FC. So and he noticed that and was, was enjoying watching soccer, you know, growing in its early stages in the U S in the early seventies. Um, and, and had a, an enjoyment of, of the game of soccer, but always remember that 1967 season, uh, uh, of the Washington whips playing. Um, he and my mom got married, you know, later in the seventies. Um, and they, uh, they did uh, a one year exchange in, in Southampton for, for a year and on the South of England. Um, and they did that exchange. It was a one year teaching exchange. My parents are both teachers. Uh, they did that one year exchange in Southampton. They came back and they fell in love with it so much that they were looking for opportunities. Uh, and they had an opportunity to come to what was then the American school in Aberdeen, uh, in 1978, they came over. Um, and, uh, my dad's first, uh, match was the Bobby Clark testimonial. And he remembered Bobby Clark because he was a goalkeeper for the whips in 1967. Um, and so he, you know, fast rekindled that connection um, and fast became a season ticket holder for the Dons uh, in the, in the late seventies. Um, I was born in 1979 um, in, in Aberdeen and, you know, grew up there again. My parents were both teachers at the American school. Uh, I was going to the American school um, in, and, you know, growing up in, in Aberdeen as well. Um, the, the lady that uh, watched me uh, in, in when my parents were at work uh, was a, a woman by the name of Frida Meganson, um, and her grandson uh, is Mitchell Meganson, who played there for the Dons. Love it. Uh, so uh, you know, and, and obviously, you know, his dad is, is a legend, you know, in, in the Highland League as well. And so, um, 
but you know, my dad was a season ticket holder, was a member of the Northern Lights Supporters Club, you know, took me to away matches as, as a wee baby, um, uh, went to Gothenburg in 1983, you know, spent the night outside Pataudry for tickets to see Liverpool. You know, so really those formative years of my life from being born till I was about six were spent in Aberdeen. Um, and, you know, I can remember, you know, the, the horns of the ships in the harbor blowing uh, on that night in, in May of 1983 and, and the parade and, and being at Pataudry welcoming the team back and things like that. So that's sort of the environment that I was brought into this world about my, my parents my dad, especially very passionate about sports, um, you know, is, is a big part of, of, of our upbringing. So I can remember that stuff very, very vividly. 1985, uh, the, you know, the oil boom was kind of dipping down. So the kids that they were teaching became less and less. Their jobs became redundant in 1985. So we moved um, to the States in 1985. But we always kept that connection with Aberdeen. Um, and initially, it was a shortwave radio getting the results in the afternoons of the matches and, and just listening to stuff like that. And you know, actually getting the VHS tape of that, the 1990 uh, cup final without knowing what the result was and, and popping that in and watching it uh, and things like that. So when we always managed to get back to Aberdeen probably every three to five years. So it was always keeping those connections of, of you know, different shops that we went to and places that we ate and, and kept in great contact with our neighbors and friends there in Aberdeen that we that became as close as, as, as family members. So you know, as we're moving along and, and keeping that love of the Dons and, you know, I was able to get over my, by myself uh, when I was in high school and, and things like that as well. And, you know, obviously you know, spending, you know, hundreds, probably this by, at this point in my life, thousands of dollars with the club shop. So, um, you know, keeping up with the latest tops and things like that, you know, it, it, it's evolved. The love has always been there. Um, you know, it's, and, and I think um, just our, our passion, our family's passion for sports has always been with, you know, your, your team and, and, and whether it's been the American professional teams that we support or the university sides that we like, they've always had that kind of underdog thing. We're not glory hunters by any means. So, you know, Aberdeen has always been a very special place to me. I'm able to keep two passports. Um, so I'm a dual citizen and, and very proud to be an Aberdonian as well. So, you know, fast forwarding that now, you know, my parents are in their seventies. I have two kids that are nine and seven, um, you know, with the prospect of Pataudry going away, I, I, you know, said to my dad, you know, five or six years ago, we need to get, do a trip, you know, to, to, to bring the three generations of, of Don's fans to Pataudry before it goes away. You know, the, the new stadium will be new for a long time, but, but Pataudry is going to be, you know, it's going to be gone. It's going to be apartments or whatever it's going to be. So th this trip has been, the trip that we just recently took is, has been four or five years in the making, got delayed a little bit because of COVID. And, and I just said, fuck it, we, we got to do this. You know, we're running out of time. My, my dad's 74. My mom is, you know, is 71 and, and you know, er, early, you know, had had some health issues, uh, you know, earlier in the year and things like that. And I said, we, we need to do this. We have to do it. And so when the way that my work schedule works, I, I'm busy, you know, during the early parts of the of the fall and autumn. So I, I wanted to find a time period where we could get over where there were two home matches and, and that we were able to do that with the, the Livington, Livingston and St. Mirren matches um, and and. We, we lined that all up and, and we were able to, to fly over um, and, and just landed on the tail of Arwen. Uh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, oh, and oh. you know, we're, we're, we're stepping off the KLM city hopper from Amsterdam and, and there's just snow and sleet and all kinds <laughs> of shit just blowing in my face. My, my son's looking up at me saying, this is where you're from. I said, oh, it's, a, it's a nice day here uh, in the Northeast. <laughs> and so, so, you know, the trip was really, 
an opportunity to share, you know, driving by where we used to live, you know, different places that we used to frequent. And, and of course the, the highlight and the, and the premise of this trip was, was Aberdeen football club. And that's, that's what we were there for. And, and, you know, we did some amazing things in, in the, in the nine days that we were there. And, you know, as you mentioned, I was, uh, I was overwhelmed with the, the, the welcome on Twitter, especially, you know, I, I doubled the amount of people that follow me on Twitter and I was bumping into people throughout the town saying, Hey, I, I follow you on Twitter. And one of the security guards at, at, at Padadri said, Oh, I, I know you, I follow you guys. So it was, it was kind of wild just seeing stuff like that, but it was, it was really an opportunity to um, show what a special place was at, you know, that, that what that means to our family to share that with my nine and seven year old and my, and my two parents in their seventies, um, it was really emotional and, and, yeah. and I knew it was, it was going to be great. And it was going to be exciting, but you know, just thinking this is likely their last trip to Aberdeen, certainly their last trip to Pataudry. And it was the boy's first trip. I, it was just, I, I was, it was, it was an incredible experience. I love it. Cause like I've got, so I've got two little ones. I've got uh, my oldest is four, my youngest, she's two, but it's right. Like, and this is where it's mad because it, this, this will be replicated, not just with yourself. No, there'll be, well, I know for a fact, because we look at our, you know, when we see our listener figures and we see where people are located who listen to the show, we can see that international spread of people who have an interest in Aberdeen Football Club. And it's been in the back of my mind for a while since my son was born, especially because he was the first, about getting him to pathology before we move. But it's really easy for me to do because I'm in Aberdeen. So I know that I'll be able to bring him along to a game. It won't be that difficult for me to do that. And even my my youngest, I, I want to take her to it as well. And again, I know it's not that it's not going to be difficult for me. I can just buy two tickets, or I can sign them up to the DNA juniors, and they'll get two free tickets. Whatever you know, for guys like yourself who are thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, it's that planning that goes into it and that thought process about well, this might be, it might not be. Who knows? We might not move from Petrodi in, in the immediate future, but it very well could be. It's great stuff and. I had one real, I had, I had a, a question, but it was obviously like, you've been able to instill a, a love for the Dons in your sons, despite the fact that you live, as we just touched on, thousands of miles away. Has that been something you've kind of had to work? I don't want to say hard on, because, you know, we don't want to kind of like, you know, force our kids to do something they don't want to do. But have they always kind of had that little interest, just even floating in the back of their heads about, you know, dad's from there, I'm kind of into this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, been, been a, Red TV subscriber, you know, even before uh, AberDNA existed. So the, the matches have always been on. And, you know, I think that's just, you know, they see me get up on, you know, it's sometimes it's 7 a.m. On a, on a Saturday morning, uh, you know, with my cup of tea and, and putting on the, my top and, and sitting on the couch in my slippers. Uh, and, and they want to they want to be a part of that as well. And so, yeah, I mean, to the point where, you know, they get, they get the jerseys each year and, and are fully kitted out when we watch the matches as well. So, you know, it wasn't hard to, to instill that in them because they, they, they get that that was, that place is special. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, just as an aside, you know, my youngest son is seven and he said, you know, dad, you know, I've, we've got a ton of, you know, Southampton jerseys and Aberdeen jerseys, you know, they've got every, you know, the last few years, we, we always get them when they're on sale at the end of the year for the little ones. Cause it's just a great, 
great, great way to, to go about that because it won't matter to them whether it's eight months outdated yeah, or yeah, not. Yeah. But, but he says, you know, I, I've got a ton of Aberdeen jerseys. Can I get like an Mbappe jersey or a Messi jersey, Messi jersey this Christmas? So I said, yeah, uh, we'll see about it. So I, I didn't want to do that route. So I got him a Pele jersey and he's, he's fully Brazil kitted out. So, nice. but the next one, the, the next one's going to be Maradona because he, he does, let, he, he sits on YouTube and watches these old highlights of the players, which is hilarious. But instilling that love for Aberdeen was absolutely not hard. They, 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 they came right to it. And then when we actually got to experience it in person, um, you know, we were very lucky. Uh, Aline Shinney from, from the club uh, seeked me out on Twitter and um, invited us. We got to go into the boardroom uh, before the mat, one of the matches that we went to and, and see the trophies. And that's where we ran into Johnny Hayes coming in for the match that night. And it was, uh, you know, really, really special. And, and it sticks with them because then they, they do, they see that trophy and they're playing FIFA and they say, Oh, there's, there's Real Madrid. There's, that's the team that they got their first star from, right, daddy? And then, yeah. And then, then they get confused when, when the super cup was not really a cup, it was a plaque, but you know, it's, it's, so they've got that history and they, they've got that love for it as well. It's such a huge thing though. I mean, you just talked on it there. Cause I took, so I took my eldest to the, you know, the sign for the Dons thing you could do through the Aberdeen, the junior thing. So my eldest, he's kind of like, he goes to football training and he does this and that, but he's never really shown any real interest in it yet but he's only four so you know we'll let him off but i took him to sign in for the dons thing and see since he's come away from that he's been like daddy i'm gonna <laughs> bless him he says i'm gonna sing for the dons because he that's what he thinks it is um he's got his little certificate up and he thinks it's great and he's 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 honestly started talking to me about wanting to go to the football he did then say to me do i get popcorn and i was like i think you're getting mixed up with cinema um <laughs> it's not gonna be paw patrol on the pitch it's, it's going to be Jay Emanuel Thomas as Rocky that's a reference out there for all the dads you know but it's amazing how much even just that we, we didn't meet any players that day we didn't meet we met Angus the Bull but just the, the sheer atmosphere about it how that kind of connected with a younger generation who are then like going right okay this is a thing and this is what I want to do and even since then he's shown much more interest in just watching games of football with me on TV uh, and like I say talking about wanting to go games I'm presuming your your two boys are probably the only Aberdeen supporters out there. It'll be elementary school, I imagine, they're at at the moment. That's right, yes. Yeah. You need to get them on that. That needs to get sorted out, you know. There needs to be a full-blown, like, soccer casuals movement out of Jacksonville, Florida. Well, yeah, there, I mean, there's a local club here, which we support, you know, and they, and they, uh, they've got the flares and, and, and things like that as well. But, uh, yeah, we should, you know, they, they're, following Liverpool and, and Chelsea and things like that. So yeah, I, I can try and turn them. That, that'll be, you know, Definitely. my resolution. Yeah. For 22. Uh, how did your boys find Pataudry? Uh They thought it was neat. Uh, I think yeah. they thought it was really, really cool to see the place that we see on our TV every weekend live and in person. Um, I, um, the pigeons or the, excuse me, the seagulls, <laughs> they were, I mean, just flabbergasted at the size of the, of the seagulls. Uh, that were there. Um, and, and I'll say this, the pies were absolutely perfect. I mean, chef's kiss, beautiful. I don't know if we had a string of two games in a row where they were very great because everything I read on Twitter, again, I hadn't been to Pataudry in, you know, some 25 odd years. So I, the, you know, the, the pies uh, get a poor report on, on Don's Twitter. And I was prepared for, you know, nothing good, but these things were exceptional. Um, the macaroni and cheese pies, the meat pies, delicious. So they enjoyed those quite a bit. Um, and, and yeah, they were, they were really, really in tune with it. We, we sat in the South stand uh, for one match 
and then the red shed and, and they love the red shed. They just, they just loved the, the, the singing and being part of that. And it was, it was really cool to see them uh, enjoy that and, and even sing the songs around the house now. I bet they got some new words to teach mommy when they got home. Eh? Uh, they can't understand it. With, with the, Doric, <laughs> the, the Doric and, and the Scottish. No, there, there's no way that they, they were understanding the effects and, the, and things of that nature. I'm gonna I'm gonna echo Noel's sentiments. The pies this year have been exquisite. Whoever yeah, pie- whoever whoever the catering company is this year, top top notch. Best signing of the season. It's Baxter Story. I hate to give them a shout out, but we're gonna do it. Um, the pies in the red shed have been all right this year. They've been fine enough. I don't know who it is that's doing them in South Stand. Maybe that's the problem. I don't know. Um, you kind of just touched on it there. Obviously that um the club did kind of reach out a little bit to you during your visit, and you got the kind of the, the tour and all that kind of good stuff. Um, did you manage though to give them any kind of feedback that you might have had as a kind of visiting supporter? Obviously, you're coming from the states. Petodre's a world away from the stadiums and match day experiences that happen stateside, and that might be a good thing. I'm not trying to say it's that one's better than the other, but there's probably things you can learn from each side of it. Did, were you able to give them any feedback at all? Uh, you know, I, I haven't. You know, I, I would I welcome that opportunity. Um, you know, I think. I think you kind of hit on it. it. It's kind of good that it is still kind of pure. You know, we sat down um, and one of the first things that my wife said was, well, there's, there's, there's not a video board. I was like, there's no video board because all the action's right there. There's the clock, there's the game. There's no timeouts, there's no replays. So some of that American, you know, I think the journalists in, in the UK would call it razzmatazz it is really unnecessary. But some of the stuff I think that they could learn from, and I think Dave Cormack has addressed some of this stuff is kind of pre-match. Is there stuff that you can do behind the RDS to have inflatables, you know, you, you mentioned it, you know, Gary, like you you did the sign for the Don's thing. And, and now that's all, all, all the kids are talking about. Well, that's how, you, that's how you hook these kids young, you get them out there, but can you do that on a match day? Can you have, you know, a bouncy castle and a slide? You know, I know, I know that Angus, the bull and, and, and the mascots are out there, but what else can you do for, for kids of all ages? So that there is, you know, face painting, but there's also opportunity to get a pint you know, not in one of the golf clubs, you can, you can get it right there, you know, beyond the RDS stand and then come in and, and really make, you know, the excitement out of it. And, and that's, that's what I would say is kind of missing, you know, from that experience. Cause you're not, you're not going to widen the seats. You're not going to make the stadium more accessible. It's, you know, it's a hundred year old stadium. It, you're, plus, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to do some of the things that you can for the fan experience there, but what, what can you do to it? I think some, some of the stuff that we've seen, like, you know, adding the soul spirit tradition mural and some of those, the paintings and just slabbing a fresh coat of paint on that stuff can really spruce it up. But what else can you do, you know, to go beyond and, and create that full match day experience again, from the, from the kids that are, you know, young five, six, seven, eight year olds to gathering the attention of, of the older people as well to, to really make it a full on experience. So, yeah, no, I mean, you touched on earlier. Have you got any plans now to kind of make a return journey in the, in the near future? Well, yeah, you know, it was such, it was such an emotional trip and, and, you know, we really, the boys really loved, loved it. You know, we stayed out by the beach. Um, they saw Cadonas. They didn't get to, to enjoy it because it was, it was Arctic out there. Um, but uh, they, I, I said to my wife on the flight back, I said, look, like, thank you for allowing us to do this trip and, 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 and being a part of it with me and, and the boys and my parents. And I said, you know, moving forward, um, I would like to commit to at least once every five years, get back. So I'm going to try and make that once every three years, get back. Um, and so that's, 
you know, to keep that fresh in my memory and remind myself of where I grew up and, and the different things that I saw, but also to, to make that heritage of Aberdeen part of my boys' lives, you know, forever as well. Um, Cause that's, that's going to live on. And, and, you know, we were, we were lucky enough, you know, Neil Drysdale did a, did a incredible article on, on our trip, uh, you know, in the press and journal in their weekend section. And um, you, those, those words will live on forever and really encapsulate what that trip meant to our family. Um, but I want to, yeah, you know, to your point, Gary, I want to definitely commit to, to getting to Aberdeen at least once every five years, hopefully making that once every three years. Excellent. We love it. No, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the ABZ Football Podcast. And I tell you what, it'd be good to get you back on again later in the season. I'd love it. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you guys and, and get the insight on, on the squad and provide my, my feedback from, from over here as well. And look forward to listening to, to you guys the rest of this season. And yeah, I'd love the opportunity to come back. Thank you. Love it. Top man. Thank you, Neil. Go Jaguars. Other news from Patoja this week. And on the women's side, the women's team are back from their winter break next Sunday. That's the 9th of January. With an away tie to Glasgow girls and women in the Scottish Women's Cup. The Dons last faced this side last season. In the league, running out 8-1 winners. But this will probably be a tricky tie for the Dons to navigate and Emma Hunter and Gavin be, be hoping to hit the ground running as they look to continue the Dons' good progress in recent years during the remainder of this campaign. And on to Loan Watch, the big news this week, as we touched on earlier, was that Connor Barron's successful loan spell with Kelty Hearts has been cut short. The Dons recalling the midfielder to form part of the first-team squad after the winter break. A big reward for the youngster who's out of contract in the summer, and presumably this will be a big miss for Kelty. No Highland League games this week until the 3rd of January. So they missed the publishing deadline. For this episode, under-18s captain Evan Towler made the loan move to League 2 outfit Elgin City during the week. And he was straight onto the bench in their clash with the 4 for Athletic in League 2, who had Mark Galker also on the bench. And it was Towler who will be the happier chap. Coming off the bench at halftime as Elgin took all three points with a late, late winner against promotion-chasing 4 for Galker playing the last 15 minutes of this one. Kelty Hearts fixture against Cowdery has postponed to COVID, so no action for Kieran Nguenya this week. Ryan Duncan's loan move at Peterhead was extended until the end of the campaign during the week, and the youngster started and played the full 90 minutes in their home fixture against Cove Rangers, which ended 1-0 to the visitors, courtesy of what appeared to be a goal from goalkeeper Stuart McKenzie with three minutes left to play. No match for Falkirk this week as their fixture against Aloe is postponed again due to covid so nothing to report on Michael Ruth. And finally, Luke Turner played the full 90 minutes as Cliftonville beat Glenavon by two goals to nil in the Northern Irish Premiership. Well, you, you say finally. We again need to address Ronnie Hernandez. You're right. Because today he posted a, well, he posted it on TikTok, but it went on, went on to Twitter. It's uh, 2022, hands of time, fitness, <laughs> flame emojis. Let's go. And there's a video of him appearing to be a, a training ground of some sort or somewhere you can play football. It doesn't look like Cormac Park, but if anyone out there can provide us information where Ronnie Hernandez is. Ronnie, if you're out there and you listen to the ABZ Football Podcast, drop us a line. Let us know where you are. And so that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break for the latest in our line of exclusive in-depth interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. Joining us this week 
It's a man who joined Aberdeen in the summer of 2013, becoming a mainstay of the side that won the League Cup in 2014, who made 104 appearances in a red shirt. It's Willow Flood. And to play us out this half, it's Shangri-La with their new single, Intervals. Follow Shangri-La on Twitter at WeAreShangri underscore La or find them on Spotify. Here they are. It's Shangri-La and Intervals.
Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. It's time now for our exclusive in-depth interview with one of the true characters to have graced Pataudry in recent seasons, arriving on a free transfer from Dundee United in the summer of 2013, an integral part of the side that lifted the 2014 League Cup. It's the one and only Willow Flood. Willow Flood, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How's it going? Yeah, all good. All good, mate. Excellent. Listen, Willow, we're delighted to welcome you on the show. It's our pleasure to get some time to talk to you with the to talk to you about your career and obviously more particularly about your spell with with Aberdeen. And let's just get going, I guess, at the beginning. Born in Dublin in 1985. Just talk to us a little bit about your childhood and was football always your kind of sport of choice, or were you attracted to any of the other kind of more popular sports in Ireland? No, like I, I was in where I'm from in Ballyfem, is where Johnny Hayes is from. Uh, we're from the same area. Um, so from five, six year old, you just played local. You played local boys club. And then when I was seven, then I went for a team called Cherry Orchard, who was quite a famous club in Dublin. And you know what? I didn't really have many other distractions when I was when I was in school. We obviously played for the Gaelic team. And then where I'm from, uh, you, you played football and you used to jockey horses as well. So okay, so so me and my mates would play football and then we go go riding horses with just a, a rope around the, the head and jump on and that was it. So <laughs> you and Johnny would be about the right sort of built for a couple of jockeys, I'd imagine. Eh? I know. Yeah, I'm actually I'm probably a bit taller than him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then ever since I was a bill, I went over on my first trial when I was twelve to Everton. And Wayne Rooney was actually playing in the team. And then I went to Man City and a few others after that. So I was there from when I was 15. And then when I was about 13, 14, I had a lot of offers from England, from Arsenal, Man United, Celtic, um, Wolves, Aston Villa. Um, and I actually signed for Man City in the Championship just because I thought it was a good club for me. And there was a lot of Irish lads there that I'd get on with. And I just, I just had a real good feel of, of the people and the club itself. So thankfully for me, I think I made the right choice in me and my first real uh, opportunity of being a professional footballer. And just going back to your childhood though, your boyhood team? Liverpool. I was a diehard Liverpool fan. It was actually strange because I was a mad Liverpool fan and I actually got to play in the same team as Robbie Fowler and Steve McManaman, who were of course, yeah. Who were in my area when I was watching Liverpool. So it was a bit, it was a strange and obviously as you get older and you kind of commit to football yourself you kind of lose interest a little bit of the team you support mm-hmm. um, it was strange even me little fella when I first came to Scotland he was just born at Dundee United and I was at the derby a few months ago and I was sitting in with me old gaffer Peter Houston watching the game and he was actually sh- sitting in the shed end with six of his mates so it was, it was a little bit strange <laughs> that's what's all about though eh and who was your favourite Liverpool player then when you were growing up? Robbie Fowler. Like I'd had Fowler. 23 Fowler on the back of me short and you used to have the Premier League stickers at the side and everything I, I got for Christmas was football boots, shin guards and a Liverpool tracksuit and a Liverpool jersey. See, he was touting himself for the Hibs job. What do you think? I think it, it'll, it'll be hard for him to get a job in Scotland, you know, just because um, I think, I don't really know what managers clubs go for these days in Scotland, yeah. you know because you look at obviously Glass has got the Aberdeen job, job a bit unknown. Pam Courts has got the got the uh, Dundee United job, and then even Sean Maloney's got the Hibs job. Which is they all seem to go for this new young up and coming manager that seems to be the attraction at the moment. 
So, yeah, going back to your your youth career, you mentioned it was Cherry Orchard, who are yeah definitely well known. I think sort of a conveyor belt of professional footballers that um, that they've produced. And you mentioned that despite interest from other clubs, it was Manchester City you signed for. So you made your, your debut for Man City. It was a UEFA Cup qualifying round against TNS or Total Network Solutions to give them their full uh, glorious title. City running out seven winners on aggregate. Can you remember much about that and just making your debut for Man City? Yeah, do you know what? I remember Kevin Keegan pulled me and says, Willow, you're going to start the game. I think that we'd won the first leg five or six nil. And he said, you might as well tell your mum and dad if they want to come over. So I actually said to me, mum, listen, just get the boat from Dublin into into uh, Hollyhead. It's in Wales, so you would be fine. I didn't realise it was the other fucking side of Wales. So <laughs> <laughs> I think they got there for about the last 20 minutes of the game. I remember my dad saying, you fucking stupid fuck, you told me I was only <laughs> 20 minutes an hour away. So um, it was only when I played that card and I actually realised how far the journey was. <laughs> um, a first career goal follows in September 2004. Uh, scored City's third and a 7-1 win over Barnsley. And then you get a first league goal as well in a 1-1 draw against Norwich City. And a couple of loan spells at Rochdale and Coventry break up your time at City. You're kind of in and around the first team squad without maybe necessarily getting a chance. But predominantly, you would have been working with Kevin Keegan. You just touched on it there um, as manager at City at this time. What was your relationship like with Keegan and how was he to work with? He was, you know what, he was absolutely fantastic. Um, When I was a young kid, I see like the 17s and 19s would play... Uh, on, in the same training ground but on different pitches and before the first team home game Kevin Keegan used to be there every single home game that he could get to him and Arthur Cox his assistant they watched the first half come in at half time and would always say a piece and then when I played in the reserves he was there at every reserve game home and away and you know what he just loved football he was infectious um, he just had a real enthusiasm for it he wanted to make people better he for someone that was such a legend in the game, he was just a genuine, decent fella, you know, and someone that I have a lot, a lot of time for. Um, when I knew I was going to make my first start in the cup against Barnsley, he actually pulled me in and said, listen, I'm going to speak to the girl, uh, the secretary, she's going to sort out flights for your mum and dad, and we'll sort out a hotel. And then after the game, he he pulled me and says, oh, where's your mum and dad? I want to go speak to them. And you know, we just he didn't have to do that. Like he was just yeah. thinking about the bigger picture, but it just that little bit of touch of class that he actually really cared about you, you know. So um when I went alone, when I went on my first loan at Rochdale, he'd ring me after every game, tell me how it was, tell me it was a different experience for me, that I need to keep working hard. And he just you know what, I just felt as if he was desperate for me to go and have some sort of career. Yeah. And of course this would have been the time where City this is before City got all the all the millions and all the money. Yeah, from yeah, the, yeah. The upstates. I mean, how did you find yourself your spells at Rochdale and Coventry just for you developing? Coventry was an eye opener because you're playing in central midfield and it's like League Two football. Like you, you go to the fullback and he doesn't even look at you, he just lumps it down the channel. So it was a little <laughs> bit of a reality check of, of where I was. And, you know, the, the loan itself didn't actually, I didn't play that well in the loan, if I'm being honest. But what I did do, it gave me an experience of thinking, you know what, I don't ever want to play at this level because I'm not sure I could actually have a career. That was being honest, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was actually, I actually went back and 
remember Kevin Keegan saying to me, how was that? And I said, fucking hell. Like, I said, I couldn't play that, like, you know. <laughs> and he said, don't worry, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be worth it in the long run. And I actually got back then the next pre-season and forced me way in pre-season. And I had a good pre-season in that, and it went quite well. And then I ended up debuting then a few months later. So yeah, I always say to young footballers, like, the loan move, you don't have to go and rip her up. You just have to go and experience of, a, of what it's like to play in men's football. Well, we just spoke to Michael Hector um, a couple of nights ago, and Michael was saying the same because when Michael arrived at Aberdeen, he'd been on loan at like every Tom, Dick, and Harry club in the lower leagues of England, and he said exactly the same thing. One for him, it was about getting game time, playing games, but also playing games against men who've been around the block, who know what it's about, and especially for him as a central defender, kind of learning, you know, how to handle yourself against these big bruisers playing centre forward. You would have heard me and Barry Robson moaning at him probably. <laughs> he did mention. <laughs> the thing is, I guess for you there, playing set midfield for Coventry and um, the right back not passing it to you, that would have uh, stood you good stead for when Shea joined, eh? Yeah, chasing Shea's touch. <laughs> <laughs> so at the start of the 2006 season, it was when you made the move to Cardiff. Um, a fee of around 200,000. Was this kind of a bit of you looking now to get a club where you could play regular? I, do you know what? I probably lost my way a little bit. Um, I always look at that from 19 to 21. I never played enough football. Um, I always remember, I think Dunfermline were interested in me going alone and that. And you know what? That probably would have been a better loan for me at that stage because I would have played a lot more games and I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more. And I felt as if I lost confidence a little bit. And I came up to an academy as a, as a central midfield player and then they... I kind of played on the right and that, but I was never going to be a Johnny Hayes. I was never quick enough to play on the right. When I was younger, I was okay in my own age group, but as I got older, it didn't really happen. And then I went to Cardiff right before the season started. Um, I think we were like top of the league after 10 games. We were absolutely flying. I was on the bench. I came on against Leeds, scored the winner and that, but I still never really got a runner. I played against Spurs in the FA Cup and played quite well. And then I played the replay against Spurs and I actually, I was poor. We were poor in the game and then the manager took me out and I played against Hull um, in central midfield where I thought it was going to be and I actually got injured after 20 minutes and I had to come off at half time. Mm-hmm. So the move itself didn't really happen for me football-wise and I was at that stage where you're thinking to yourself, like, am I actually going to have a career or not? Because obviously you see footballers nowadays, you can lose your way a bit until they actually play first in football on a regular basis, then you don't really know what level you can get to. And then, thankfully, after Cardiff, then the Dundee United manager rang me, and I was as soon as he rang me, I just wanted to go and play games. Yeah, just touching back really quickly, you talked about the goal you scored, a winning goal um, at Ellen Road, and obviously Cardiff Leeds is a big, big rivalry. Um, that must have been some occasion to get a winning goal at Ellen Road for Cardiff. Yeah, like obviously I remember the FA Cup beforehand and what happened with Sam Haman walking around Ninian Park and I remember watching on telly thinking he's a bit nuts him, like, you know, <laughs> and he was a bit nuts and uh, obviously it was a big thing for the fans and that, but you know what, I never really, I look back, I didn't really do that well at Cardiff, I never really had enough opportunities, it played me on the right, I never thought it was a wide right player and it was just about when the season ended, it was just about me and my agents getting down and just getting, getting me playing games really. Yeah. Yeah, so you've touched on the fact that you were just desperate to play play some football and obviously the opportunity to join Dundee United and alone came up. So what did you know? I mean, did you know much about Scottish football and you know what it was all going to be about? Or was it just a case of 
I want to go and play football. They're not going to let me play football, so I'm going for it. Yeah, like when you're an Irish kid, you like Celtics kind of, you just, you're a Celtic fan when you're born and that's it really. It's not, you know, so you pay attention to Celtic and that, but I actually Googled it done the United players and wasn't being disrespectful because I was bought, brought up in English football, so I really just concentrated on English football and I was Googling the names and obviously I knew John Daly and Sean Dillon from the Under-20 World Cup and that. And then people were saying to me, Barry Robson and that, and I didn't really know who Barry Robson was. And then obviously after being in a training session with him and Lee Wilkie and a few others, I thought, fuck, these lads are decent, like, you know. And obviously Craig played me every game and he, to be fair to him, he got my career back on track, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, mean, I think there is a tendency, or certainly within the country, to overlook maybe what the game can offer. We tend to get too hung up on the riches of, you know, the game in England and stuff like that, maybe put ourselves down. So it's kind of good to see, you know, someone from the outside coming up and thinking, actually, this isn't as bad as maybe people make it out to be. So once you, you arrived, you make your debut for United in uh, a new firm derby at Tannadines against Aberdeen, where you, you start alongside fellow future Aberdeen player, Barry Robson. Uh, but unfortunately, you're sent off after 42 <laughs> minutes, a second booking for uh, an alleged dive. So yeah. <laughs> your your first introduction to the bizarre world of Scottish refereeing. Yeah, well, to be fair, it actually wasn't... I, it was my fault that day. I, I think I'd done a bad tackle on the first one and I'd done a dive on the second one. It was a shit dive as well. I deserved to get sent off. <laughs> um, and thankfully... Uh, we won the game that day and I actually played in a reserve game a week later and got sent off in that game as well. <laughs> so I actually thought to myself, oh my God, should I have come here? Or what? So I might as well go back to Ireland and chuck it. <laughs> um, and thankfully, uh, Craig Levine got me going again after a few weeks. And because I wasn't used to playing football every week, like it, took, it actually took me a good, I'd say it took me a good two or three months to get going at Dundee United, you know. The manager persevered with me a little bit. He put me on the bench once or twice and that. And then he just, something happened in training and I just felt good about myself. And I felt as if the confidence just came back. And then thankfully then he, from there, I started playing really well for Dundee United at the time. Yeah, I, I was at Tanner Dice for your debut, Willow. And um, it's fair to say, it was, it was a pretty outrageous attempt that died. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, your first season at United is a pretty successful one, to be fair. Uh, you make 44 appearances. In total, that campaign, scoring one goal as the Arabs finish in fifth spot, which was one point behind Aberdeen, but uh, make the League Cup final, which included a infamous 4-1 thrashing of the Dons at Tynecastle in the semi-final. That's not one we want to talk about too much. I remember, it was actually a good atmosphere that day. Do you know what? The two semi-finals that I played at Tynecastle, one I played for United, one for Aberdeen, they were two unbelievable days. I'll tell you, I enjoyed one a lot more than I enjoyed the yeah. other one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the final obviously saw United take on Rangers at Hamden in a, a pretty thrilling match, actually, that ended 2-2 after extra time. Just talk us through your first impressions, actually, of playing at Hamden Park. You know what? It was a, Obviously, we knew it was a big game and that we stayed in the we stayed in Edinburgh for two days and that, and then we went to the game. And I remember in the warm-up, me and Mark here were talking and that, and we were doing a possession box, just the usual 5v5, you know, warm-up thing before yeah. before a game and that. And I was fucking shitting it. Like, I thought, <laughs> no energy in that. I was just nervous energy. And I thought, oh, fucking hell. Like, I better get my act together here. Once the game started, we were fine and that. I actually played quite well in the game. And do you know what? I wasn't... I was disappointed, obviously, we didn't win the final. But it was more just for the old chairman at the time, Eddie Thompson and that. And I remember, I think we were winning 2-1 and that. And... 
the, the camera went on to him and the whole place lifted, you know, because obviously he was going through a hard time at the time. Obviously, we got another bad decision from our referee that day, which, to be fair, we, we could have been 2-0 up. We went 1-0 up. Uh, Christian Calvina should have got, got fouled in the box. The ref never gave it. And if we had a score that, it would have been 2-0, I think. And I think it would have been game over. I don't believe it for a minute that the referee didn't give you one. Not like him against them boys, but it is what it is. And that was, you know what, it wasn't... Obviously, you were devastated for your teammates and fans and that, but I think that that day itself would have just been unbelievable for Eddie Thompson, for what he'd done for Scottish football. And he was so genuine and just a decent fella. So, yeah, following on uh, from the extra time, it's one of the penalty kicks and actually your first to step up for United and you scored to put them 1-0 up. Would you normally be first up in the shootout? I mean, is that yeah, a- yeah. I just liked taking the force and I felt confident going up. But as I got into my career and I missed a few, then I became 9th or 11th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I used to take pens when I was a kid at Cherry Orchard. I took them in my youth team at Man City. Um, so taking the pens at that time, I didn't, I felt confident going up. And um, we'd done pens a few days before and we'd done five pens and I scored five out of five. I always went that side, keepers right, my left. And, I felt, felt confident going up, you know. And obviously when I scored my force and I actually think they missed their force and then I thought, yeah, this is this could be us. And obviously, uh, I think Conway missed, Streaky missed and might have been someone else. Why big Streaky nominated himself for a pen? That's Lee Wilkie, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, his penalty was saved. So yeah, maybe, maybe he shouldn't have done that, but you live and learn. Exactly. So yeah, unfortunately, Rangers won the shootout 3-2, uh, you did, however, pick up the sponsors, man of the match, but I'm guessing that's probably sort of irrelevant when you've just lost the cup final, even if you've you've played well, probably doesn't give you a great deal of comfort. No, no, it's I don't even, you get a little trophy that day, I don't even know where it is in the house, you know. I actually say to the little fella, your dad was all right in certain games, he said, yeah, sure you were, dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's harsh, isn't it? Kids can be yeah. harsh. So after returning to Cardiff at the end of that season, um, actually a second season long loan at United has agreed. Is that something that you had really pushed for? Um, yeah, like I just it was the first time I'd really played first time football and enjoyed it, you know. And I, I had a good feel for it. The little fella was one year old. He obviously came over to Scotland when I was, when he was first born. He was born in Ireland, so the missus was happy in that, and we just we were settled, you know, and. We just said we'd come back. We good manager, good place to live. Uh, we liked teammates. She had friends here as well, so we were settled, and we just thought it was the right thing to do. Um, obviously they sorted out an loan agreement with uh, Cardiff that they could call me back in January if something happened in January, and that's it with both parties at the time. Yeah, and as it is, you you made twenty four appearances for United that campaign, and that loan is then cut short in January. 2009 is Cardiff decided to accept a bid from Celtic that saw you move to the east end of Glasgow for an undisclosed fee but it was around the 1.3 million region I think it was reported at the time no, I don't even think it was a fee I think it was only 50 grand or something it was a, yeah. a very small fee yeah basically they were just taking over my contract because ah, okay. what happened was uh, Dundee United were only paying a percentage of my wage so Cardiff were just happy to get you off the wage bill and that uh, so then I yeah I signed for Celtic unfortunately after the Missing second pen. Yeah, I was going to talk about that. The interesting part about this move is the fact that two days before your move to Celtic, you played for United in the League Cup semi-final against uh, against Celtic at Hamden, and 
were you aware of Celtic's interest before the game? Yeah, like there was a bit of talk of it. Um, so like every day, like Craig Levine would call you in the office and that, and <laughs> Craig Levine's a scary man at the best of times. And he go past his office and he's like, Willow. I'm like, fucking hell, like, lads, he's, I need to go in. And he's like, Willow, what's happening? It's like, nothing. I said, I don't really know. He had a good relationship with my agent at the time. I just said I didn't really know what was happening. But I said there was a bit of interest, but I didn't know how concrete it was and stuff like that. And then I remember we stayed in a hotel the night before and he put me in a room on my own, which is unusual. He just said that I don't even know if you'll be here for the final. <laughs> so I said, I will be. There's no doubt about that. I'm desperate to do well for Dundee United. Um, Dundee United were brilliant with me. And, you know, um, and then I just played the game as normal. And he actually felt as if I played quite well in the game. And I scored my first pen, obviously. And then I think what happened when I went up to my second pen... I was used to hitting that corner at the time and I just, I was thinking about changing it and it was probably the worst thing I could have ever done. And then he ended up hitting the crossbar in the end. And to be fair, when you score five out of five pens, you expect to win a penalty shootout. But just any chance of the goalkeeper making a save, our goalkeeper making a pen, a save that night would have been good because we would have went on and won the game convincingly. The game itself, you know what, the game itself it was a bit of a shit game because yeah. I think the semi-final was in the night before and the pitch was terrible. Like there was hardly any grass on it and Hamden was terrible in the night um, but we actually played quite well in the game and um, I think we had the better chances and then uh, they obviously beat us on pens. Yeah, I remember the game quite well and you're right, I remember the pitch was cutting up really badly as well um, yeah. because you're right, the other semi had been the night before and United probably deserved to win it over the 90 minutes and just in terms of for yourself, how hard is it for you to kind of focus on the match in front, knowing all this talk's going on in the background, especially because against the team you're playing against. Yeah, it was easy to be fair. Yeah. See, when you're, when you're playing for a team and you've got your teammates and people that you respect and the club that was so good to me at that time, I felt as if they got my career back on track. So I was just going out to go and try win the game. You know, I was desperate for Dundee United to get to a final. Because I think the, the one example we always think about as Aberdeen fans is um, Charlie Nicholas stepped up in the 1990 Scottish Cup final penalty shootout. Uh, against Celtic and everybody every Tom Dick and Harry knew that Charlie was going back to Celtic after the summer and he was a Celtic fan and everything yeah. and he stuck his penalty straight in the top corner like, that's an absolutely brilliant penalty kick yeah. like considering the circumstances and you're always like how easy would it just be just to lean back just that touch further and just you know knock it over the bar you know but then obviously it, Gordon Strachan was the manager at Celtic when you joined up at, at Celtic and, and Gordon's obviously a club legend at, at Aberdeen for what he did as a player here what was your relationship like with Gordon? Really good. Like He actually said to me, listen, I'm not saying that you're going to play every game this season. He said, but next season you'll play a lot more. Um, I was there for about two weeks. Um, I was training okay. Um, I made my debut against Rangers. We should have won the game. It was a bit of a shit game. Scott McDonald missed the header. And then uh, I was on the bench for a couple of weeks. And then I, I actually done my calf. And I was out for about three weeks with my calf. And then I, I, I only trained two days and I played. He brought me straight in for Tynecastle because I always seemed to play well for Dundee United against against uh, Hearts at Tynecastle. So that was obviously in his head. And I trained two days and he, he put me in against uh, Hearts and I had a fucking stink I like, to be fair. I was terrible. Um, but you know what? <sighs> like, it's probably my one biggest regret is probably signing myself, if I'm being honest. I've probably said it, I've said it to people in podcasts before, like I, 
I was really enjoying my football at Dundee United. I just felt as if I had something good and I felt like I was just going to become a bit part player. But you know what? A club you support and the size of the club, it was very hard for you to turn down. If I knew how it was going to turn, turn out the way it did for me, I wouldn't have went, no chance. Yeah, you've, you've touched on the fact that you made your debut in the Old Firm match and then you, you made uh, five appearances. Celtic finished second before Gordon Strachan ended his spell um, on the last day of the season. And then it was Tony Mowbray that was uh, selected to be his replacement. Um, he didn't really feature a great deal. Was that just, you know, he just wanted something different from the players and you just didn't really fit into that? Yeah, basically, he wasn't having me as a player, which is, that's fine. He's just his opinion. I wasn't his type of player. Um, we played pre-season over in Australia. I done quite well in a game against Brisbane Roar and someone else. And you can just get that vibe off a manager. He actually said to me that I could go a few clubs rang up about me. So I was actually going back to, I had agreed to go back to Dundee United alone. Um, spoke to Craig Levine, he spoke to Peter Lowe while everything was sorted. And then I came on against Arsenal in the Champions League qualifier. Yeah. I'd done okay, I'd done quite well in the game. And he just said that the next day, he just said, I can't let you go alone. He said, I need you here. And he said, I want you to stay about the place and that. And obviously, he told me two weeks before that I could go and then obviously changed his mind two weeks later. But I just stuck it out till, stuck it out till, um, till January. Um, and I never played and I just I wanted to wait in the place as quick as possible and you touched on it there I mean I think you made a total of four appearances that season up until January for Celtic all from the bench except a start against Falkirk in the League Cup and then in January 2010 you along with Barry Robson and Chris Killen leave Celtic to join back up with Gordon Strachan at Middlesbrough um, who were English Championship at the time Debut against Sheffield United, the first goal in your next match against Swansea, coupled with 11 appearances, makes it look like you've settled back into some regular football. And then a knee injury against Cardiff sees you miss out for the rest of the season. Just Can you just explain to us you know, how frustrating was that for you at that point, to have got back into a run of games and then... Yeah, you, you feel like you're getting back into a rhythm, you're enjoying your football again, you're playing, um, you're settled, you've enjoyed living there, it's a good place to be, and you're on with the manager, a good manager... And then I, I remember the game itself. Uh, we played Cardiff and I was playing actually quite poor and Strachan gave me a little bit of half-time and, uh, and me being me, I went out and tried to smash Kev McNaughton in a tackle and I done <laughs> my own knee. I done my own knee in the tackle and I done my posterior crucia. Um, so it was one of them. I was out for the rest of the season. I think I was out for 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I'd come back then pre-season then and then done my other knee. Yeah. <laughs> So I'd come back pre-season, uh, done all the pre-season, uh, done all the pre-season games. Wasn't really expected to play the first game, to be fair. Me and Baz, Barry Robson, were coming back in the car and he said, oh, you'll definitely play. And I said, ah, I don't think so. And he said, no, I think you'll play. And then 11 minutes into the game, then I'd done my uh, posterior crucia. Uh, not my posterior crucia, uh, patella reconstruction. I dislocated my patella. Because I'd done it as a kid, then I had a patella reconstruction. I think that sounds extremely unpleasant, so I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't delve into that too much. You know what? It was I don't know when I was a kid when your kneecap pops out and then when your when your leg straightens up, then your kneecap pop, pops back in. This was a little bit different. There was an impact player. It was one of my own players. Just went knee to knee, and I just felt my kneecap come right out, um, and it came back in. And then I was out for like I think I was out for about six months or something, maybe maybe more than that. Uh, yeah, it was just. 
going to say that did rule you out for around about the next six months. So, but I was just wondering, I mean, not to dwell on an injury too much, if you can maybe just give us an insight into the actual, I guess it's the physical element, but probably just the mental toll a couple of those injuries take. And then you've had a frustrating 12 months prior at Celtic. Is that, it's probably quite a difficult period just to actually focus on and get through. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, to see the mental side of it, it's tough. Like, you know, you have doubts in your mind and you're thinking, am I going to get to back to the level that I think I can get to? And obviously, you have doubts. Obviously, your contract's coming up in the following year. You're thinking, is someone going to actually want to sign me with the injury record? There's all sorts of stuff going through your head, you know, when you just got the the thing for me was just get, get in, do the rehab and battle the rehab and see where you're at. To be fair, thankfully, at Middlesbrough, I had a real good uh, physio. The medical department were outstanding, which was which was helped me massively. And then at the first, the, see the first year months of rehab are quite boring. They had me on a thing called a CPM machine, which bends your knee. It's a machine that you stick your leg in and it, it bends your knee so far. And you were on that like for four or five hours a day, relentless for, I think, about three weeks. And that that was quite boring. Um but then once you got into the rehab and that and you start jogging and stuff, then it was a lot easier and you felt as if you were closer to the team and you even just having the banter with your teammates and that you felt a bit more part of it. And then uh, obviously Strachan had left and Tony Mowbray's come in and you're thinking, <laughs> well, that's time to go now. <laughs> I was just going to talk about it. <laughs> to compound matters for you during your spell out, Strachan leaves Borough, they decide, oh, fuck it, Tony Mowbray's the boy. What was your own initial reaction to that, given you'd left Celtic because you weren't getting a look in under Mowbray? Yeah, I was like, yeah, just thinking, oh, here we go. But you just, you know what? Tony Mowbray didn't fancy me as a player. And it's just, that's that's life. That is just, you know, that is, even when I speak to young footballers or when I was growing up and or I was a senior player, like one thing I was with young players, I was honest, you know, and he just didn't fancy me, and that was it. Looking back, he just he should have just said, "Well, oh, you're not my cup of tea." And that, to be fair, he came in. I was in rehab, and that, and he just said, "Listen, I know you came to Middlesbrough, and you started quite well. And when you come back from your injury, I'll give you a chance." And that, and I came back, and he brought me on as a striker. I think against Barnsley, I think I was <laughs> never going to be a striker. That's for sure. As you can see, I wasn't prolific in front of the goal. <laughs> <laughs> And then I, I think I came on once or twice after that, and that was it. it was, well, see, when you've been out for that long, it takes you time. I was a player that used to take, if I was out for a year, it would take me a year to just feel right about myself. Yeah. Some lads can be out for six to nine months and feel good about themselves after two or three months. I wasn't one of them, even when I was out with the hamstring injuries. If I was out for eight weeks, it would usually take me about eight weeks to just feel good about myself again. So that was it. And then, when I when Aberdeen or when Middlesbrough released me, I actually met Aberdeen. Okay. We actually met Aberdeen. I met uh, Willie Miller, Craig Brown, and Archie Knox. Yeah, it would have been Brown and Knox. So yeah. I met the three of them up in Glasgow. The meet them went fine. To be fair, Archie and Craig are really good people, and Willie, they were they were sound, and they offered me a contract. And then Dundee United came in. It was just the the fact that I'd experienced good times at Dundee United, and I had a a bit of a feel-good factor about myself going back there and I decided to go back there, you know. To be fair to Aberdeen, they tried to get me there at the time, but um, the missus was happy to go back to Dundee United. The little fellow was happy. So it was just, for, the, for all of us, it just felt the right fit at the time. 
Yeah, so as you say, you, you returned to Dundee United uh, signing a two-year deal in the summer of 2011. And again, straight away, a level of consistency, 39 appearances in all the competitions in your first season back, and then 45 appearances the second season, um, and you got four goals over the two years. So going back to Aberdeen, it's McInnes and Tony Doherty that had been appointed as the new management team at the tail end of 2012-13 season. And on the 31st of May 2013, it was announced that you'd signed a pre-contract with Aberdeen. So at the time, I mean, to be honest, Aberdeen had been toiling. We'd been pretty woeful for a number of years. How much work did the management team have to convince you that signing to Ab- signing for Aberdeen was a good step forward in your career? Yeah, obviously I'd come from Dundee United where we were we were successful. Like we always finished top six. We were always in around cup competitions and you knew Aberdeen was a big club because obviously I played in the new firm game enough times to realise how big the club was. Obviously Aberdeen, massive club and obviously everyone talks about the glory days of Alex Ferguson. I had a relationship with Tony Duck. Um, Tony Duck was at uh, Dundee United when I first came. Um, and then Derek McInnes, was, I met him, he came to the house and uh, I think as a player you just get that good feeling that this could work. Like, you know, he had a the way he spoke and I just thought, you know what, I, I think he'd be a good manager to play for. And I just, after being in the house, I said to the missus, like, Dundee United had offered me a third of a wage cut. I actually got player of the year and they offered me a third of a wage cut and I just thought they were taking the piss a little bit, if I'm being honest. And when Dale came and that, I just thought, you know what, he'd be a good manager to play for. I just had a, I just wanted to play for him. I just thought he was going to build something good. He was telling me a few of his targets that he was looking at. He obviously spoke about Barry Robson. He was going to make Ryan Jack a big part of his player, Johnny Hayes, Nan McGinn. He talked about a core group that were already there and he was going to bring in players to make it better. And I just thought, you know what, this is something that a fancy offered me a three-year deal and it was just something that I thought, yeah, I think this will be a good fit for both. Yeah, I mean, you, you've obviously touched on your first impressions of Derek and Tony, but what did you think of the squad once you actually got there and got you know the opportunity to train with them? Yeah, like people like Jacob surprised me. Uh, Pete Pollard surprised me. You know, they were better players than I thought. With some good young players coming through, with, with Cammy Smith at the time, who, who was in around it. Um, yeah, like Andy Considine was obviously a better player than I thought. So you get to know people when you're in the building and you actually appreciate them a lot more. Um, yeah, so when, when I was in the building, I thought, you know what, these are better players than I thought they were. Um, and to be fair, that season, that the fourth season, like Pete Pollard was absolutely flying. Like, you know, yeah. he kind of played as a wide player and Dell put him in the 10. I actually think he got in there because did Barry Robson get injured or something in the fourth or second game? I think he'd done his media ligament or something. And we played me, Jacko, and Pete ahead and that. And it just seemed to click. And Pete, to be fair, was absolutely rapid. Like, you know, when he took that ball in the half turn, like no one was catching him whatsoever. And then... You always remember the Peter Pollard song and, you know, yeah. it was just a, it was an unbelievable year for us, really. I mean, it's a bit of a, like, a running joke amongst Aberdeen fans, but when um, when Virgil van Dijk really started to become the kind of player he is, and people would be like, who can't Virgil van Dijk defend against? He'd be like, Peter Pollard. Like, he struggled big time against Pollard in those two seasons when Pollard was really at it, you know? Yeah, we beat Celtic twice and... In a week, remember we beat them in the Scottish Cup and yeah, beat them in the league. And that 
I just think that squad just lacked a little bit of depth. We just yeah. was we were short the numbers. We should have done the double and we should have finished second. We were definitely good enough to do both. I felt as if when we got to the top six, like we were just out on our arse. We were gone. Like we played a lot of games. The manager hadn't got enough players to rotate. We'll come on to that in a minute. We'll come on to that in a second. Let's um let's just start with your debut though, eh? Yeah, that was do you know what we played well that day. Like I obviously I played well myself that day. I scored. I think Aberdeen fans thought they were getting a goal scored in midfield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's a good it's a good header though. Yeah. Um we played really well that day, to be fair. We we absolutely I know we beat them two or three nil, or three nil one but we absolutely battered them. Two one, but it was two one going on like six nil. It yeah, was a- I remember I remember first half thinking me, Barry Robson, Noel McGinn, we had a few little interchanges of play and that we to be fair, we looked a proper, proper team that day. And the, the whole place was buzzing, wasn't it, that day? And we actually started the season on fire. I think we, we'd won the first few games. We did. What do you just remember about the goal itself? And for you, how big a weight is that off of your shoulders to get out? I mean, you're not a striker, so it's maybe not that important about getting a goal, but just to get yourself up and running in front of a new support. Yeah, the goal didn't bother me, to be fair. The goal didn't bother me. It was just the fact that You'd obviously, like, people would have said, oh, you know what it's like, football. Is Flood even good enough for this club? Is he this and that? And, you know, and to be fair to the fans, they talked to me straight away and that. And we had a good, like, I think we had a lot of good moments together, you know, especially that first year when I think, when I was there, Aberdeen for me three years, I definitely played my best football in that first year. And I think I had a small part to play of, obviously, the Derek McKenna's era of growing the club, which obviously grew over time. So, yeah, you were in the starting lineup consistently before, unfortunately, injury strikes during the League Cup tie uh, against Aloha. It was a hamstring injury which saw you out for what turned out to be four weeks. But uh, at the time the, that you picked up with the injury, were you a little bit concerned that this might be another lengthy period on the sidelines for you? Yeah, not really. Like, see, muscle injuries didn't really bother me, you know, because I knew that, to be fair, Aberdeen had a great medical department. He had a boy... Uh, John Sharp, who was a top physio, and David Wiley, both good lads, both good on both good on muscle injuries and that, and obviously done a lot of work with Sharp. Yeah, to be fair, I came back in no time. I was back, and then I, I think my first game back was Ross, uh, not Ross County away. Is that right? I think I came back after the four weeks, and he actually felt good in that. And I remember the manager doing the stats on the game. I think we were shit that day. I think we were losing, and I came on and. I think I had most touches on the pitch and the manager was having a pop and we played poor on the day. But no, do you know what happens with muscle injuries? <laughs> you always feel like you're playing well and then a muscle injury happens. See, when you're having a shit time, that's when you want a muscle injury to happen. <laughs> it <doesn't laughs> really happen like that. <laughs> so it wasn't the injury, it was the timing of the injury. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was in good form and that, and obviously we actually scraped through. We beat Alava on pens, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. But Jack, do you know what? It's so good about, like, I always say to people, when you're on cup runs, no one remembers the early rounds. You only remember the finals and that's it. I'll tell you a story about that first game. Um, my wife now, girlfriend at the time, I thought, oh, we'll get you into football. That'd be good. And I took her to the Alloa Cup game. And she's never been to a game never since. Never been back since, yeah. <laughs> no, that was it. It was a shit game as well. Oh, fucking terrible. Paul Hartley was manager, and they actually they were quite hard to break down that day. And I was very impressed with Aloha that night, actually. I yeah. thought Aloha were... Because they were part-time as well. I thought they were really good. I thought they were well-organised, and I thought that... Um, I thought Hartley was going to go on to have a pretty good 
managerial career off the back. Yeah, of that. yeah, yeah. But hey, there we go. Uh, yeah. So following on from your your injury, you're you're back in the team for away trip to Motherwell in the quarter final of the League Cup, which was a really dogged performance by, by the Dons coming through 2-0 despite a red card to Joe Shaughnessy on 14 minutes. Can you remember much about that game and what the atmosphere was like after the game in terms of, you know, obviously that's a pretty good result down to 10 men. And was there any sort of belief that actually maybe the, the squad can go on and do something in the Cup? Yeah, I, I don't really remember much of the game. Did Andy Constant score that day? Yes, he did. And Hayes, I think, got the, the late on. Late Johnny goal. Hayes got on, yeah, late on, yeah. I don't remember much of the game, to be fair. I just remember uh, the chairman coming in, Shield Mill, and to be fair, he was absolutely top man. we never seen him. He never got involved in the football stuff. And in the, anytime you've seen him, he'd ask, how's everything, Willow, everything okay, family and that. And he was just there. You know, I had a lot, a lot of time for him. I just remember him coming into the change room and saying, fucking brilliant, lads. And... The manager saying to Joe, you owe them one because we'd obviously, we'd won with 10 men and that. I think Pete was actually playing right back in the day, in the in the game and that. And Pete put yeah. an absolute shift in. And I was, do you know what? To be fair, I see in pre-season, I thought this Aberdeen team is decent. Like I thought this this could be a decent year for this team. And obviously after that cup final, we, we thought, you know what? We could actually do something. I actually think the over the years, the Aberdeen team that I played in should have won more than I actually did. And obviously after me, then the, the only problem was the Brendan Rodgers Celtic team that Dell was up against was probably the best Celtic team that's been for the last 15, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's pretty undisputable, I guess. In, in terms of that season, again, injury hits for yourself a couple of weeks later. It's another hammy, forces you out. Uh, a game against Hearts at home. You missed like another kind of four weeks or so after that. Yeah, but- you haven't started about that game. We were playing that, but I think we were one nil up when I was. I'm sure Barry Robson came on for me. Whatever happened, uh, so half time, uh, I I come off the pitch. I was in the I was in the uh, change room and Barry Robson comes in and a half time and Dell says to him, "Listen, you fucking be careful." He was on on the yellow card, the usual. I hadn't even had me. I hadn't even had me shower. I'd walked into the shower and the, someone comes in the door. What the fuck? It was Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> was yeah. Fuck, I've done that walk a few times. <laughs> the two of us had a little chuckle to ourselves. So I say, fucking hell. I said, he actually said to you, be careful when you go out. I said, fucking five minutes later, you're sitting in here. <laughs> I, I, it doesn't boggle my mind sometimes that Baz is in charge of our under-18s. I'm not going to lie, but never mind. <laughs> you know what? I I actually I went up to watch him coach a few times and that he's, I think he's got a right chance of being a top, top manager. Um yeah. He's intense. He's he knows what he wants from individuals. He knows what he wants from his team. He's desperate to go and be a manager one day, and he's getting a great ground in Aberdeen. And you know, I think he's got every attribute to go and uh, be a good manager. When you say every attribute, you just mean miserable bastard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's. You know what? He sets his team up to play a certain way. They play with energy. They yeah. they get after you. They press. They. They're hard walking, they're fit. You obviously have a lot of respect for them. And to be fair to him, he done a lot of work with Calvin Ramsey when Calvin was in there. Yeah. Him and look what Calvin's like. Like Calvin is as good as anything that's in Scottish football at the moment that's coming through. Absolutely. And uh, joking aside, I mean, the the work he's doing with our 18s has been ridiculous given how young a group it is he's got there and how many of them are out on loan. 
and having to do work with them is, is crazy. So fingers crossed that does that does continue. But let's just uh, tick back momentarily. A, a memorable one, I would imagine, for the Willow Flood memory box, the 10th of January, 2014. A home match against Hibs looked destined to finish 0-0 until the ball falls at a certain Irishman's feet 30 yards from goal. Four minutes remaining. Do you want to take it from here? You know what? I just, I took... I took a nice touch. I just set up for me, and I just thought, just hit it. And obviously, it wasn't the, the goals in, and the hips fans were hammering me all game, you know. And uh, I just couldn't wait to give it to them. So, to be fair, it was a bit of a shit game because I think it was Alan Tate's debut as well, wasn't it? Uh, it was. Yeah, it was just you know an unbelievable goal and into the game, and you know we were just happy to keep that one going, you know. I, we were obviously in a good moment of the season and we'd obviously some big games coming up. Where does that one rank in your goals? It's up there. Like, it's definitely... Uh, I, di- I didn't score many, but when I did, seem- I seemed to score a few okay ones. Obviously, scoring on my Premiership debut for Man City was a big one. I got goal of the season for Dundee United. I scored a couple against Hearts for them. I used to love score. I never scored many, but you know what? I seemed to score all my goals against Hearts. I don't know why, but they used to give me dogs abuse as well. To be fair, Tynecastle for me is probably the best away ground to play in in Scotland. Yeah. I just, you know, when you just hit a ball and it just feels right, it's like a goal shot. You hit a good goal shot and it just feels right and it just it felt right. And it was actually the anniversary of my cousin's death and that. And I just, you know what, it felt good and I was absolutely buzzing, obviously. Tops up. Graham's nodding his head about hitting a golf a good golf shot, but I I refuse to believe you know what that feels like. I'm only nodding because I've heard people say, "Do you know what it's like when you hit a good golf shot?" I'm aware of the phrase. I haven't experienced it. <laughs> I've seen other people do it. I've heard a few shanks in me time. <laughs> well, join join the club. Um, so actually, coincidentally, you were you were talking about Tyne Castle, so we'll move on to the first of February. 2014 and a League Cup semi-final against St Johnston at Tyne Castle. Can you remember much about the build-up to the semi-final? I mean, what was the mood like in the camp? Was it optimism, a bit of nerves? I think we were. I think we were confident. We knew that St Johnston would give us a game because the way they played, it was. They were always tough to play against St Johnston. You know, you never really enjoyed a game against them. It was just one of them where you kind of grinded it out. And to be fair, first half in that game, we were shit. Uh, I remember coming in at half time and that I think we were we were winning at half time and I walked in and I had a pop at the lads at half time. I said, Fucking hell lads, this has been fucking shit. I said, Don't start thinking that we've fucking done well. I said, We're winning the game, but we've been absolutely shit. And the usual moan from me and that I had a pop. Um and to be fair, second half we, we played well. Um Langers makes a great save in the first half. Um I just remember that game like Air front tray and Johnny and Noel and Pete being a right handful. Like, you know, when you had them three on that on that day and they were quick and to be fair, they were they were unstoppable when they got going, the three lads. Uh, yeah, certainly as a fan, when yeah, when they all clicked and they were on their game, it's just really satisfying to watch a team of Aberdeen footballers who could just take the opposition apart. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's there's winning and then there's taking the opposition to pieces and one's more enjoyable than the other. Just, just a wee side note on that game is actually the debut of Shea Logan. So I think he's got a reputation for being a bit of a, a joker. Is that, see someone you had a decent relationship in terms of how you got on with him in the squad? Yeah, Shea is a good lad. He's, you know what Shea is like. He's not sure of the confidence at the best of times. <laughs> when he's the worst golfer I've ever seen. I know that he'd be fucking, 
I've played golf from the last few months. He's been horrific at it. No, Shay's a good lad. He's settled in, confident boy. You know, um, obviously Joe was playing right back for us for the first half of the season. Joe obviously wanted to be played centre-back, I think, and McGaffer obviously thought that Shea would, would probably do a better job and Joe would end up moving into centre-back and that. And to be fair to Shea, he was good saving to Aberdeen and he just needs to stay off social media for a bit. <laughs> That's probably a pretty fair summary, actually. But yeah, he was really good in that game for his debut. He's a different character to me. He Like the young lads nowadays, they're into the social media and stuff and the Instagrams and that. I couldn't think of anything fucking worse than that shit. Like, <laughs> I think that's, you're a man after my own heart. I don't administer the podcast social media side. I'm aware it exists, but I rely yeah. on Gary and Gavin to do that for me. Yeah, it's it's our job to sit and troll people. That's what yeah, the exactly. yeah. No, the, listen, that Aberdeen team for me was a, a really, really close bunch. People like Nicky Weaver didn't play, but you know what? He was so good in the change room. He was one of the funniest lads you'd ever meet. The young lads loved him, like Cammy Smith and that. He was just, you know, we had a real close bunch. We weren't the biggest of squads, but we were very, very close. I mean, the game itself, it's a it's a memorable one for any Aberdeen fan. Uh, you know, a 4-0 win sees us into our first cup final for 14 years. During the game itself, though, can you is there a point in it where you can kind of relax a little bit knowing that job's done? Probably the last five minutes, I thought, right, we can actually chill out here a little bit. Um, to be fair, I just remember the atmosphere that day. It was unbelievable. Um, and I always remember after the game and that the reception we got from the fans. And we actually went back to the Dakota up in, you know, at the Fort Row Bridge there. Yeah, yeah. Gaffer brought us back there and we, we all had a drink and that. But I just thought that team was destined to go and win something. You know, I didn't know whether it was going to be a League Cup or the Scottish Cup. Looking back, I think we were good enough to do the double. Unfortunately, we never done it, but I just remember the, the reception we got afterwards and all the lads thinking, you know what, we can go and do it. And I remember we were trying to get big bonuses for the final and that, so <laughs> <laughs> we were trying our best. I mean, it was. It was a ridiculous semi-final. I mean, again, I guess kind of similar to the final, the majority of the stadium's Aberdeen fans. It's effectively three sides. Graham, you and I, we missed the first goal. We missed Johnny Hayes' goal. We were still boozing in the pub and hadn't, well, we turned up at the Wheatfield then. Oh no, I can't remember. The main stand, not the main stand, the, the along the other side from the main stand. And the queue was huge. And it was like five, like, I don't know, two minutes past three. And we're, we literally got through the turnstiles and you heard this massive roar go up and you're like, fucking hell, like, who the fuck has scored? And you kind of managed yeah, to race yeah. up the stairs and found out it was us. And then you're like, fucking hell, that better not have been the only goal of the game. Like, yeah, yeah. And as it turned out, it wasn't to be. And it, it was just a remarkable afternoon. Adam Rooney obviously scores the third in the afternoon. He just joined the club a couple of weeks beforehand. And you kind of touched on it earlier on that the size of the squad, the depth maybe wasn't quite there. But in terms of just the overall impact in the squad itself and the club, when you bring a finisher of Adam's quality into the setup, just how much of a lift did that give everyone? Yeah, like to be fair, like I think I thought Scott Vernon was doing a good job for us. You know, he was a different type of striker. He was a better league player than Adam Mee. Yeah. No, but one thing about Adam is if you get balls in the box with Noel and Johnny in the team, he gets across that front post and he always, always got goals. Like, you know, if you give Adam service, he gets goals, you know. Um, Scotty was a different type. Scotty was a good footballer and that would link the game quite well. And the gaffer obviously thought he could bring Adam to the team and he, he thought he would obviously score plenty of goals for us. And to be fair, he done an unbelievable job for Aberdeen over the years, that's for sure. 
Mm. Good lad as well. He was he settled into the group and that. And to be fair, most of the signings that he brought in, they were mostly good characters. To be fair, just on that really quickly, actually, because in the summer that you and Robson came in, um, Calvin Zola, Greg Wilde came in as well, and these two guys were then kind of very quickly moved back out the door again in the kind of January window. Without wanting to go into specifics or kind of personals or anything like that, was that partly due to kind of like not fitting the group, that kind of thing, or was it just performances, do you think? Yeah, they were different type of characters. Greg Wilde was a quieter lad. He walked his balls off, to be fair to him, and he just, he never really got a run because of Johnny and Niall, you know, so he obviously thought he wanted game time. And Calvin, to be fair, was a great lad in the change room, mixed well with the boys, really funny lad and that, and he just... Dell just obviously maybe wanted to free up some wages and sometimes they need to just manoeuvre some money to get other players in and obviously to get Calvin out the door then he freed up wages to get Adam into the door and that was obviously good business for him and it was was shrewd business for him. Yeah, no, definitely. Cool. So a week after the League Cup semi-final, um, Aberdeen faced a trip to Celtic Park in the Scottish Cup uh, where we ran out deserved 2-1 winners uh, after falling behind early uh, goals from Russell Anderson, so a bit of a collector's item, and uh, Peter Pollitt, who was yeah, having a great season, sealing a, a fantastic seven days' worth of work, and certainly performance of yourself and Barry Robson in the centre of the park you know, obviously gave us an absolutely brilliant foundation to, to go on and win that game. In terms of that particular performance, would you rank that quite highly in your Aberdeen career? Yeah, team performance has got to be right up there, that's for sure. Like we to be fair, I know we only won the game two one, but we were actually the better team on the day, you know. I thought we played some good football and I thought we dominated the game most in most parts. Um even when they scored they go they went one 0 up, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah, and I always thought, you know what, we can get back into it. And sometimes when you go to Celtic or Rangers and they go one 0 up, usually usually you're thinking, fuck, keep the score down, you know. Uh, but it wasn't like that. We just we had a we were on a run at the moment. At that moment in time, we were feeling good about ourselves. And once Russell scored, then to be fair, I thought we were a better team. And it was one of them where P scores a great goal. It was a ball with the outside of his left peg from Robbo, wasn't it? Um, he scored in that, and the team just clicked that day. And we just it was one of our better performances, probably our best performance of the season. To be fair. That and the semi-final were the two of the best performances we played. Um, I didn't even think the semi-final, we won 4-0, but I didn't think it was a 4-0 game. But the, the, the Celtic game for me was definitely 2-1, but we could have maybe nicked it away a few more. And just sort of final point in that game, given the way your time had gone at Celtic and it was a bit of a difficult time, did that result give, you know, does it give you any set, extra satisfaction or are you just, the past is the past and you're just focused on Aberdeen at that point? Yeah, it didn't, you know what, it didn't really bother me. I actually had a few good results against the old firm and that, and it didn't. I was just, I was just buzzing to get Aberdeen into a cup semi-final. Well, it was the last 16 or whatever it was, quarter-finals. Um, I just thought we were on a good run, and I thought this team could actually go and do the double. You know, we the lads were feeling good about ourselves, and to be fair, I think the injury to Pollitt and that later on in the season actually killed us. You're never present in the team as eyes move towards that League Cup final against Inverness. Can you just give us an insight into the mood in the camp in the week running up to the final in itself? And was it a good move by the manager to think to decamp everyone without St Andrews away from the city? Yeah, the lads, like, I just think the manager wanted to get us in our own beds and he knew we could get eyes on us and we weren't distracted by whether it was skill runs or whatever you had to deal family-wise at home. The lads loved it in St Andrews, to be fair. The hotel's brilliant. We trained 
and he just he he done a bit of shape and that and someone was struggling with an injury. Was it Pete was struggling, wasn't he? We were trying to get Pete Pollard back for the final, then he was struggling. And then obviously Johnny actually got injured after a couple of minutes as well, which is yeah. which killed the firepower and that pace in the game. Um but the week was brilliant. Uh we done a bit of work on Inverness, but we done mostly what we were gonna do and how we thought we were gonna hurt them. But obviously the manager's plans changed when two of our main players actually were out of the game. And as a player, just how aware do you become of the kind of history surrounding a game like this and how much pressure gets piled on you when you hear about the fact that the club has sold like 40 plus thousand tickets for a final? You, do you know what? You don't really think about it and that. And then it's only when you go out and you do the warm up and you see, you think, oh, fucking hell, this is actually not bad. This, like, you know, and then you go out for the, at the start of the game and you look around and you think, oh, 45, like, you obviously, you take it all in a bit and then once the game starts and it's just like any normal game, you just kind of forget about it and it was the worst, I say it was one of the worst games ever to watch, obviously, you were watching it and that, so <laughs> you should be able to tell me. No one's disagreeing with you here. It, it was my stag do, Willow. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the game lasted so long, our hangovers started at the time, penalties kicked yeah. in. It's not a classic game of football. There wasn't really many chances. It was, I think, we had the possession of the ball without really creating, and it was a really a nothing game. And that, and then we went out. We practiced pens all week, to be fair. And Tony Duck obviously knew that I missed a couple, and he said, "You're way down the back." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and to be fair, I felt confident with the lads we had in pen, like Nicky Law, Baz, Adam, and uh, who else took one? Uh, Scotty Vernon Scotty Vernon yeah like, we practised them all week and that and the lads were so good like and so comfortable and you fancied them all day and to be fair you fancied Langers to make a save so I think I think Scotty came on for Cammy Smith had come on for Johnny when Johnny got injured yeah and then Scotty Vernon came on for Cammy during extra time I think the manager had an eye on penalties which is a good shout and Nicky came on Nicky came on for someone as well Nicky Lowe didn't he uh, yeah, I can't remember who Nicky came on for. I can't remember. Or did Nicky come on for Cammy Smith? Nicky might have come on for Cammy Smith actually, and then Scotty Vernon came on for somebody late on with a view and a penalty kick. Anyway, anyway, like I don't even know the game. I forget what the game was like, but I just remember the celebrations and it was like a stag day on a bus for four hours. It was unbelievable. Like you know, thirty odd lads, like players, staff, and. In the change room, the, the chairman came in and everyone was saying double bonus, double bonus to the chairman. And uh, what was he saying? Yeah, good one, lads. I <laughs> <laughs> know. Yeah. Um, to be fair, they gave us good bonuses. And then Barry Robson actually owed the kitty money because he'd done something during the week. And we actually went to a supermarket and he, we got we got loads of drinks. I think he spent about two hundred odd quid. We were singing on the bus all the way home, and when we got when we got to the Marcliffe where all our families were and stuff. Like we were absolutely steaming. Like you know, I remember the missus saying to me, "Fucking hell, are you alright?" <laughs> <laughs> grand, grand. <laughs> Tony Duck and the uh, Bunsen, the the uh, video analysis boy. Like everyone was absolutely. You know what was the best journey I've ever had in my life? Anyone that was on that journey will tell you it was. The crack we had, everyone was singing. Cammy Smith was singing every Aberdeen song he knew. <laughs> it was just a good, good day. And 
to be fair, I don't think my medal is somewhere. I don't know where it is, but you know what? The medal doesn't really bother me. It was just a memory of people that you actually got on with and you achieved something for the club and staff and the players. And do you know what? It was an unbelievable day. Yeah, I think you're, in my opinion, all too small group of individuals who've won something at Aberdeen. But nonetheless, you're part of the history of the club. You know, anyone who wins something is always going to be revered and can't even, although the, the game is pretty brutal to watch, it's amazing being a fan watching your your team win something. So I can't even imagine what it's like actually being able to participate in that um, on the pitch. So, yeah, it must have been something else. Um, yeah, so I remember, like, I, the little fella was about four or five at the time. Four, and he was the only fella in, in Dundee that used to wear an Aberdeen uh, one. <laughs> he got the football all the time. Uh, and then brought him on the pitch and that. It was just, you know, you've got pictures of it and it's, it's stuff that sticks with you for the rest of your life. And, he probably remembers it a little bit now, but he's obviously changed his colours now to he's a he's a shed boy in the Dundee United end now. But you know Well, only when you need to get the shed that is though, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was an unbelievable day and you know, one that I'm sure all the Aberdeen fans will remember and I'm sure there's plenty more days like that to come. Well, yeah, certainly hope so. So we've we've heard a lot of players who are not from Aberdeen. Um, maybe say that the new Aberdeen was a big club, but they don't really understand the potential scale. And I was just wondering for you, I mean, obviously you've touched on, you knew what Aberdeen were about, you'd played in Scotland for a while, then you see the crowd. But what was it like when you actually see that open top bus tour and the whole length of Union Street is just chock a block? I mean, that's probably another step up when you sort of realise what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. Like people always say that to me, like, oh, like I knew Aberdeen was a big club and that, and obviously you know, the history that comes with it, but it is a bigger club than what you think it is. And when you get cup final days and you get days like that down Union Street, like it shows you how big the club is. And if Aberdeen can start winning a few more things, like can just show you like how big the club can be. And, you know, there was good people around the club at the time and the people that I had a lot of respect for, like the chairman was unbelievable at the time. I, I couldn't speak highly enough of him. Um, even the day of the... Of the uh, the Union, the Union Street there, he never wanted to be in amongst it. He wanted everything for the players and the staff. And he was just, you could see the the achievement of like, yeah. I'm sure we got a lot of stick along the way and stuff like that. And it was a sense of like, listen, we're ready to go now. And Aberdeen are trying to build something. And I always remember then they were, we went to the some seminar thing in Aberdeen and they were always talking about training grounds and we need to get to a training ground and we need to do this and that because... At the end of the day, Aberdeen was a massive club, but we were still jumping on minibuses and going to two or, th- two or three different training grounds. And, you know, we were travelling, going to the barracks one day, we were in Balgownie another day, we were in Counties Wells one day, we were in somewhere else another day, you know, which wasn't ideal for a club, but, you know, the manager, to be fair, at the time brought a real togetherness to it and it worked for us. Yeah, I think, well, fortunately, those days have gone and they've got some you know, some professional infrastructure behind the scenes now. So just go back to that particular season. Form in the league continues on a consistent basis, but obviously eyes are starting to turn to the potential of a cup double and we find ourselves uh, with St Johnston in the way. We have a semi-final at Ibrox with Aberdeen getting off to a decent start, um, begin with the opener after 15 minutes and having looked comfortable for the, the first hour of the game, just sort of turns on its head with a Stevie May double seeing you know, St Johnson turn it around and they make their way to a Scottish Cup showdown with Dundee United. Having been in such control of the game, can you give us any insight into 
sort of what went wrong in that last half hour? I, I just remember going in at half time thinking, well, while in control of this, it actually felt a little bit like the semi final when we had control of the game at times. And they never really were a goal threat. And I think when we when we conceded the fourth goal, it spooked us a little bit and we just lost the whole confidence and momentum of the game. You know, um, I don't really, I just remember like Barry Robson missing a header from a cross that I put in and we just never really had many chances within the game. Like we had a bit of possession in that, but. To be fair, Stevie May absolutely bullied his second half, I thought. And we never got we never got the grips with Stevie May's second half. And I think if we if we had kept Stevie May quiet, then I think we would have went on and won the game convincingly. And I think we would have won it by a lot more. If we had a if we had a kept Stevie May quiet, I think we would have won the game two or three nil. But unfortunately Stevie May got the better of us that day and we just weren't good enough. What was the reaction of the manager after the game and did the squad realise that it was a really good chance for another final that's just gone. We we knew that we were so close to doing a double. Like I think we had enough uh, about us to go and beat Dundee United that year. We we done it a few times, and we just felt as if that squad of players could have could have went on and done something really special that year. And it was a missed opportunity, and I'm sure it's one that every one of that team regrets. You know, from staff to players and fans alike. You know, we. For me, we, we were definitely good enough to go and do the double. Like I don't think any other team in Scotland that year goes and beat Celtic twice in the few days that we did. And we actually dominated the game and, and Celtic Park in the Cup. No, absolutely. Uh, a second league, a second place finish in the league remained up for grabs, though, as we got to the final day of the season. A winner takes all fixture against Motherwell at the Tawdry. A fairly drab affair. Looks certain like it's going to be nil nil, which is going to be enough for Aberdeen to take second. But all hell breaks looks in that last minute. Yeah, it was a strange game. Like they didn't even come and have a goal. Like they yeah. needed to go and beat us, and they, they literally just sat in their own eighteen-yard box, and we dominated the game without really creating anything. And it was like a bit of a shit game. It was just a possession-based game. There was no real action to it. They didn't really have anything in the game, to be fair. And then they just got that free, that uh, free kick on the halfway line, and. I remember Langer's coming in. I was going nuts after the game, and I said, "Fucking hell, Langer, you need to do more than that." And to be fair, it was a sh- it was a bad foul on him. You know, it was, obviously the ref didn't see it, or the linesman didn't see it, and it was one of them where you feel a bit dejected. But I remember speaking to the manager, and he's saying, "You know what, Willow? It's probably not a bad thing because we know this team is improving all the time." He said, "I'll make sure I bring a few players in in the summer, and we'll definitely be better next season." Um, and to be fair, he did improve the squad and that, but we never. We never really got them, got a bit of silverware at the end of it. After the dust had settled then, after that game against Motherwell, your first season at Aberdeen saw you make 40 appearances in all competitions. You scored three goals, pick up a League Cup winner's medal as well. I mean, were you pretty content with that first season or was there a bit of regret about that Cup semi-final? Definitely regret on the Cup semi-final, 100%. There was, the team was good enough. Like When you played so well first half, uh, to go from the first half performance to the second half performance was shit really from us as a team. So obviously there was massive regret at the end of that season. You were happy, you played a lot of games and I had a couple of hamstring injuries within the season and that, which didn't help. I think I would have played more. It was one of them, you were, you were content with what you had done because of the cup final, because of the day out and how good it was. But obviously you knew that the team should have done more. So as we, we go into the next campaign, the uh, season starts quite quickly and early on with Europa League qualifiers. So Daugava Riga swept aside 8-0 on aggregate before we're, we're drawn against uh, Groningen. 
who arrive at Pathology full of confidence in their own abilities, and that's boosted further by a nil-nil draw, which led to a member of the Dutch squad announcing that they were thought they were 90% through. Did that particular comment from the Groningen camp pretty much save Derek McInnes from needing to do anything in terms of a team talk? I guess he just puts that up on the board and tells you to go and uh, shut them up. Yeah, to be fair to the gaffer, like he, he said it in the meeting, the team meeting, he said they're so fucking disrespectful for us and he said we we know we can go and hurt them and that and to be fair, he set us up in a way that we could go and hurt them on the counter-attack and it was, it was an unbelievable performance from us that day. We well deserved it. was actually the lad who said it. I actually played with him at Dundee United, Nick Van der Velden. He's actually a really decent lad. Because um, I always bring it up and say, fucking hell, you Dutch fuckers were arrogant as fuck that day. Like, and we played well. We played really well in the game. And I remember the Aberdeen fans were stuck up high in the corner. And we played well. We deserved the win on the day. And we went back to the hotel and... Dell said we could have a few beers and that and we had a few beers and it was on to the next one. And you're thinking the thing with Europe and Aberdeen, you think right, we've we've had a decent draw, we've beat a good team, surely we can get a, a team that we have a right chance against, and then we go and get Real Sociedad. And to be fair, they were on a different level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was gonna say Groningen, but Aberdeen were great. Uh, you're absolutely right. So I I'm imagine you you thoroughly enjoyed playing in that one, and we were all the same. You're thinking, right. We've got through a pretty tough game. What are we getting next? Uh, Sociedad, right, okay, it's good. You know, you want to sort of test yourself, but you also kind of want to get as far as you can get. Um, and that, yeah, I think you're, you summed it up quite right. They were they were just really pretty good. But in terms of your recollections of the, both of those games, um, probably good experiences in terms of the result for Groningen, even against Real Sociedad, I thought 5-3 in aggregate, I thought we gave a pretty good account of ourselves. Yeah, to be, I, I remember Apatodji, we, we wobbled them a little bit, we yeah. we had them on the ropes a little bit and we actually went all out attack a little bit, probably a bit too early because Dell had changed his shape, we went with Diamond against them and I played right the Diamond and that and we actually played well, we spooked them a bit early doors and the crowd got behind us and we scored and we played well and to be fair, they, they had a bit of quality in the end with Sean Trill and they were a proper outfit over there. I remember speaking to Baz thinking, fucking hell, Baz, we got absolutely battered. I felt as if we touched the ball about three times. Every time we touched it, we were just giving it away. Um, they were a proper outfit over there that was roasting over there. It was a nice place and that. But when we got them back home, we spilled them for a bit and unfortunately, we just we didn't have enough on the day to go and uh, do it. Just on a personal level, did you enjoy the challenge of getting to play European football? It was a bit different. It was good. Yeah, you got we were on our own private plane and that, and we went over there, and it was a different experience, you know. And I always felt the European night at Petodri was it was a little bit different, you know. If you played a midweek game in the league, it was not the same. But a, a midweek game or a European game at Petodri, it was absolutely bouncing. The the crowd were on you, and they were helping you massively. In terms of target setting for that second season. Did the management team have any, did they set you any real kind of objectives, targets? He was always, he always said we could win a cup. He was, he, that's why he never rested people in cup games. He always put his best team out and he, he thought we could go and finish second in the league. Or if we could challenge Celtic, great. If we couldn't, he always said we, we, he thought we were the second best team in the country. Um, and to be fair, we, we, we did have another good season. Um, I obviously had a few hamstring injuries, the usual. Um, he recruited well in the summer. And the team, to be fair, we just, I don't know how we done in the Cups that year, actually. Well, come on to that. I was going to ask you, that season looked like it was maybe a little bit of a frustrating one for you, but you sort of touched on the fact they had a couple of hamstring 
injuries, which uh, unfortunately meant you you missed some periods of the season. Almost twelve weeks. Did I miss twelve weeks that season? The hamstring against Celtic. I think you're a injury against Celtic in November, and you were out until early January. Yeah. So that would be pretty much yeah, that would be around about that sort of time period, which you know, a shame for the team, and I'm sure personally, a bit frustrating for you. I imagine any time a footballer gets injured, it's annoying. Yeah, it was a horrific injury at the time. I was a, I was a twelve week. It was a massive grade uh, three tear on the hamstring, but it wasn't even that. It was when I came back from the hamstring injury, I had nerve pain. It was a strange, like you go into, I'd obviously drive up to Aberdeen, I'd be in the physio room and I felt as if I couldn't, it was like a light bulb going through my body and that my back was sore, my calves were sore, it was, it was a horrible injury to come back from that it was like, you know, because you've been out for so long and whatever happened in in the nervous system, in the body, it was, it was a nightmare and to be fair, the physio was brilliant with me at the time but I, it ended up uh, taking a long time. To, I ended up getting a facet joint injection, which actually killed the nerve pain down the leg and stuff like that. I remember the, the tackle against Celtic. I was just, I was just stretching for the ball, and the boy gave me a little nudge, and I just stretched and he overstretched and couldn't even put my socks on for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, that's. I suppose that's an insight into what it's actually like having an injury. You know, like for me as a fan, you see, all right, okay, that's a shame. Will was out. You'll be back on an estimated date, but you don't really have any idea what it's actually like going through it and what it takes to actually get back in any sort of meaningful time frame. It's tough because I was back, I was only trained a week and the gaffer, to be fair, tried to get me back for the semi-final and I I came back against St. Johnson after being out and I was fucking sh- I was shit. Like, he took me off at half-time, um, deservedly so. And uh, I never played in the semi-final, obviously, after that because I, I was nowhere near that. I wasn't, I wasn't up to speed. Yes, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the Cups, Aberdeen were beaten in the League Cup semi by Dundee United and we were knocked out of the Scottish Cup at the fourth round stage by Dundee. Uh, both of the games which you, you missed out on, um, although you were an unused sub in the United semi. So I'm guessing our form of the Cups was probably pretty frustrating for everyone in that squad, given what we'd accomplished the season before. Yeah, especially the Dundee game. I was actually at that game. Like, we always had a good record against Dundee. If you actually wanted to back Aberdeen in the coupon, you would usually back us against Dundee because, we, to be fair, our record was very, very good. I, was, I remember watching the game. We battered them in the game. We just never scored in that. The Dundee United semi-final, to be fair, we just never turned up enough on the day. I didn't think we played well enough. and I fancied us against them any time we played against them, but we just never turned up. And to be fair, they were the better team on the day and they deservedly beat us on the day. Moving on to the next campaign, and if we want to talk about impressive Aberdeen away performances in Europe, the 3-0 win in Rijeka is probably up there with some of the finest, not just in recent history. You're, you're probably going even all the way back to the Ferguson era. Uh, you came off the bench for the last 30 minutes or so for that one. Just your recollections on that one. You know what? I just remember we signed Danny Ward a few days before that, and he came in, and we were lads were thinking, fucking hell, this fella must be all right in that. And he was quite chirpy, and... Good lad in that, I thought. He has a bit about him. Like, he obviously backs himself in that. And I remember him making a couple of saves in that game. And I thought, fucking hell, this fella's decent. Like, I thought. And then, to be fair, the lads played brilliant on the day. Like, you know, anytime we broke a pace in that game, we looked like scoring goals. The gaffer went, I'm sure he went to a back three that day, didn't he? Played Paul Quinn, middle of the tree. And, yeah. And I remember, and like, we, we turned up and the manager done a lot of video and that. And because when European games, you don't really know who you're up against. And, he was telling us how we can hit them on the counter-attack and stuff like that. And Wardy made a couple of early saves, which helped us massively. And 
the lads were brilliant to be fair on the day absolutely brilliant and opportunities for you begin to kind of drop a touch in this campaign the manager had brought in uh, Graham Shinney Kenny McLean adding competition in that central midfield area were you the type of player that would be in there kind of hassling the manager <laughs> I think I know the answer to this already yeah I play golf for him and that and we, we laugh about it now and I I was coming I was getting older and that and Shinny Kenny Jacko and they were pretty good in the field you know what I mean and it's like Willow like why the fuck did you keep knocking at the door and he said like he said, when you were, he said, when you were at your game at 23, 24, you would have fancied yourself against them. He said, but they were at their fucking peak. You know what I mean? They were flying, he said. He said, but I knew when I dropped you every Saturday, knocking the door, you, I thought, why am I playing that? This, that. <laughs> <laughs> Any chance you just shut the fuck up and just get on with it? We laugh about it now, but no, it was, a, you know, when you look back, it was a good midfield tree, wasn't it? It was, obviously, Pete Paula hadn't played as much because Kenny kind of had stepped in and, Shinny had come as a left back and he stepped in as a midfielder and Shinny was outstanding for the club and Jacko just kept on getting better and better every season and it was a proper, proper midfield tree and to be fair, the squad itself was quite strong that year. Like obviously, me and Pete were on the bench, Baz was still on the bench at the time. It was a decent squad and it was one that the manager obviously wanted. It was the one that the squad that he was trying to build every year. Yeah, thanks to Aberdeen, but off to really great start actually winning the first eight games of the season uh, sitting top of the table as Celtic looked vulnerable to a title challenge it's probably maybe a little bit early for this question but was there a belief in the squad that they could actually challenge for the league or as professional footballers are you just taking it literally a game at a time it's only eight games in let's just calm down yeah you just you knew something wasn't wasn't right or something you know the Ronnie Doyle stuff and the appointment of him and they just, I don't know, the dynamics of it just didn't seem right. And we just thought if we could get a good runner, we would have a chance. And to be fair, I think the January window killed us that year. We lost Danny Ward, the goalkeeper, who was outstanding. And I'm sure we lost Adam Rowney, who had a bad injury. I'm sure he was out with a high injury or something for about eight to 12 weeks. And two big players for us at the time. And I actually think if we had a kept it, if we had a kept Rowney fit and we had a kept Danny Ward till the end of the season, like... I think we would have had a chance. Losing Ward was massive. Like, I think Wardy wasn't just a good goalkeeper. He brought a calmness to it. He was such a good character. He was quite a funny lad, backed himself. Um, he just had an aura about him and, you know, one that you just wanted in your team. And even when you knew you played shit in the day, Wardy would pull you out something and he, he, he'd grind out a 1 0 win because Wardy would pull out two or three saves. Yeah, I think it's difficult to actually. So almost put into words the impact it had with him going back. And I think personally what was really frustrating is he went back to, I think, just sit on the bench. It's not like he went back and actually got to play games. So, I don't know, it was always a bit, a bit frustrating that they took him back and didn't actually use him. Yeah, I know. And to be fair, I think Wardy as a lad, I think he would have liked to stay. He was enjoying his football. He, he had a good thing going at Aberdeen and the fans had obviously really taken to him and he, was, he settled straight away in the change room and that's all. It was a tough one for the squad, if I'm being honest. You know, the lads really had a lot, a lot of faith in them. That's for sure. Yeah, so, I mean, we were, you know, sort of starting about the talking about the, the start of the season. So, despite the the good league form, Aberdeen were knocked out of the League Cup with a third round stage by Hibs, who were then in the Championship, and followed by a first league defeat of the season at Inverness, which leads to. An October with no victories before Aberdeen then embark on a run of twelve matches unbeaten in the league 
And that pretty much takes us back to that point where, you know, um, Danny Ward disappears or recalled, which is a real shame. I think the next question I did actually have was about the impact of Ward, but we've kind of discussed that. So I've got my questions back to front. So I'll probably shut up now and let Gary move on. I guess um, the key date for me in that season, even when Danny went back in January, we still kind of kept on ticking over. And Simon Church came in and did a pretty good job actually backing up Adam Rooney. 19th of March, I, I still remember this day. because. Yeah, I remember this day especially because I was actually coming home. My wife's got family in, in Northern Ireland and we came home from a, a trip in Northern Ireland that weekend and we got off the ferry and we were driving up and we're coming past fucking Kilmarnock actually just as this game was finishing and Celtic were on the early kickoff at Kilmarnock they were a point ahead of us Tom Rogic scored a ridiculous goal with like a minute to go just as we were probably finishing our warm-up at Fair Park and you were on the bench for this one but I remember the lads talking I remember we were all talking about between us and we were chatting about like oh Celtic have won all like if we go and win today we can go go top of the league and Rogic scores a fucking worldie and I remember Tony Dock saying fuck he's had to score in a worldie and then we ended up losing again. We were shitting the day. Barry Robson came off, came on and got sent off. <laughs> Nothing new there. Um, it was a shit day all around. And you just think, you know what? That was the turning point for me massively. I remember I remember it like it was tomorrow, like it was yesterday. I just remember Tony Doc talking about her in the warm-up. Roger scored in an absolute worldie. And us, us playing bad in the day and losing again. Barry's red card. Can we just talk about that for just a split second? Scott McDonald knows Barry Robson inside out, so he knew them elbows were coming out, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> He's a minute in the park, eh? And he gets done for an elbow at McDonald, and it's like, oh, man. He used to do that all the time. We played Dundee United at home. He'd he done it against Charlie Telford. We beat Dundee United at Pataudry, and he says to me, I never touched him, I never touched him. And I'm like, you must have touched him. <laughs> seen the video on the Monday he was going down to appeal on the Monday he absolutely smashed him right in the nose <laughs> he went down to appeal he said I'm going down to appeal he said I know no chance of winning the case just after the game though what was the mood like after that one yeah the lads were deflated like you know you just think it could have been a year or we could have brought them down to the last couple of games and quickly bump time and see where we can take them I was just, the lads were deflated, if I'm being honest, proper deflated. After having had such a good start to the campaign, the season ended up being a little bit disappointing. We finished up 15 points behind Celtic and uh, obviously knocked out uh, both of the Cups. And for you, on a personal level, you make 22 appearances across all competitions. Did you make the decision there to approach the manager to understand where you were in his thoughts, um, you know, in terms of you wanting to play Football regularly. Yeah, you, do you know what it was? I so I was the missus and the little fella were in it in Dundee. So I used to stay up in Aberdeen two or three nights a week in the in the apartments near the Stag pub. They buy their own the Highland Hotel, had apartments across the road. So I used to stay there. And you know what? I just thought to myself, fuck this travelling like all the time up three nights a week and barely getting a match at the end of it. And to be fair, looking back, it was probably the wrong decision because I, I had a close bond with them and I actually think if I had to be more mature about it, we could have actually just been a bit power player and maybe helped the younger players along the way because of a good relationship with a lot of people in the club and probably me just being me didn't want to do that, you know. I actually spoke to him at the end of that season and he says to me, just come back pre-season and see what you think. And we won in St Andrews and that and 
he played against Hearts and he actually played quite well in a pre-season game and I said to him Gaffer I want to go and that and he said oh well, like you should stay like you know you're a big part of what I am here you've been here since I've been at the club and you know there's a job in coaching here for you if you want to get into coaching after you finish and I was that fucking stupid that I was like no no I want to go and you know looking back it was the wrong decision but you know at the time I just wanted to play and I just didn't think it was worth me while being up in Aberdeen two, three nights a week and being away from the family and not getting enough game time at the end of it. And I just decided to go. I spoke to him a couple of times and he said, oh, listen, we've got a European game. Uh, I actually had to laugh because the day that I left, the fucking next day, they had someone in my jersey, where's Bones was. <laughs> I said, you fucking obviously had him lined up before you there. <laughs> you put me out the door. Because I we always laugh about it at on the golf course and that I was playing golf with him and Doc. I said I wasn't even out that front door. I said and you had someone in that jersey, but that's what managers do. They've obviously got the manoeuvre. My wages was getting freed up. He obviously had a loan from Bristol City who brought in Wes Bones and that, and that's what they do. They've got to just manoeuvre things to bring up and come and players show the system. And as it is, you kind of played the first couple of ties in Europe. The following season, you started the home tie against Fulham Ash. But then it was announced on July 14th you were departing the club, having made a total of 104 appearances, scoring three goals. That leads to a fourth return to Dundee United, initially in a one-year deal, which was extended for a further year, where you made another 59 appearances, scoring three goals. Um, but United failed to get out of the championship before you depart United in May 2018. And this is where things get a little bit strange. You uh, sign a one-year deal at Dunfermline, which is cancelled a week later, and you received an offer from Bally United in the mid much social media fanfare. You're unveiled as a Bally United player before three days later it's announced that you can't actually sign for them because of eligibility rules. Um, oh, strange. It, was str- it was strange, strange times. I'd obviously signed for Dunfermline. Um, I was still going to coach at Dundee United at the time. I was coaching in their academy. I was taking the seven days and that. Um, and then a friend of mine plays over him, but it was the lad Nick van der Velden that was actually... I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. The arrogant fucker. <laughs> <laughs> he said to me, he said, well, I've, I've told the owner we should take it and that. And I was like, he said, he said, do, do you fancy it? I was like, oh, that's a bit different. Like, it's, you're not one of them when you lose a game in Scotland, you put the crash helmet on, you're walking down the tunnel, you're getting dogs abused. So it was a totally different atmosphere and living. And it was something that I, I wanted to experience. So I went over there, uh, done a medical, trained with them, and that was fine. Um, signed, they put everything out on social media. Um, and then the lad came to the hotel about two days later and said, well, oh, the contract's fired. And I was like, what? Like, I said, it can't be. I said, I've left the contract to come to a contract. And he said, no, no. The league said that the, the rules had changed and you had had to come from the top division in Scotland to sign for Bali United. I'd obviously come from the second division in the that was championship and I was like fucking hell so then I was, I was, the contract was void and that and then I I'd come back then and I was like thinking what do I do now you know and I was one of them do I keep on playing games or do I keep on trying to play or do I coach or what do I do and I just made a decision then that what I wanted to do and to be fair touch what I think the decision that I made then is probably the right thing for me going long term you want to know what it is I was, so I was going to say, so unfortunately, you know, that that was the end of your, your playing career. And my follow-up question was going to be, what have you been up to since you've retired from being a footballer? 
Yeah, when so when I came back from Bali, my old manager asked me to go to Falkirk at the time. And I was struggling with my Achilles at the time and I didn't think it was right for me to go and play an Astro and I didn't think I'd be, I was doing him justice by struggling with an injury and that. And I just, I didn't fancy it at the time. So then I, I set up my own football agency, uh, just looking after young emerging talent players. And I've just been doing that since for the last three years, to be fair. I've got some young players on my books that I try mentor and look after and hope advise them in the right way to hopefully have a good career. And obviously I've got a lot of young talent that I think are, are playing Scottish football at the moment. And I think that I can hopefully help them make the right decisions and not make some of the decisions that I made in my career. Well, certainly wish you all the best with that. And just from what you've, you know, you've taken us through your career with decisions you made or didn't make and loan spells, etc. Maybe a good point you made, which is why you might go on a loan spell, which might not be actually to tear it up. It's maybe actually the the realisation or the penny dropping moment that if you don't get things going, that's the level you can end up when you think, yeah, that's not for me. You know, it's a sort of a, a motivating factor, maybe necessarily than, than game time. So, yeah, certainly wish you all the best with that. I think we all will wrap up here with one final question and this question is something that we ask everyone who's been kind enough to to come on and give up their time so the question is what does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? If I, if I could sum it up in one sentence it would be the cup final at Celtic Park you know just for me Aberdeen was the best club for looking after the players from people like Stephen Gunn and that they do everything for you and for me a lot of good people within the club you know um and people that I have a lot of respect for and people that, to be fair, when you go back there, they're very welcome and they'll do anything for you. And I just had a good time. Obviously, my first year was the best football I played for Aberdeen out of three years. But people, to be fair, appreciate everything you've done for the club. And it's a club that I'll always go back to and I enjoy going back to Batodji and watching games. Willow, top man. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the ABZ Football Podcast. We really appreciate it. Wishing you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Cheers, lads. Thanks very much. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And please remember to like, subscribe, follow, or whatever on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week for episode 26, where we'll be joined by Tom Watt, who makes his second appearance of the season, as we continue our mid-season review by looking back over the season so far, and we offer our assessment on the performance of the man in the dugout, Stephen Glass. We'll then run our preview for the hopeful return of the first team and the visit of Newco Rangers to Pataudry on Tuesday, the 18th of January. We'll have our usual look at our loanees and loan watch. We'll see how the women's team got on in their cup tie against Glasgow girls before we round things off with the latest in our line of exclusive, in-depth interviews with Don's personalities of past and present as we interview a man who arrived in Aberdeen on loan in the summer of 2013. And although his stay in the Northeast was a short one, his 22 appearances and one goal ensured he remains well thought of in this neck of the woods. It's Michael Hector. We we'll look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. <laughs>